If Maria supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Sending out good vibes. in the same time um, where we had genetic um, changes, we had climatic changes, we had physical changes of the planet. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grand America Show. Uh, we are going to be chatting with um, Bruce and Daniela Fenton a little bit later uh, about ancient aliens and stuff like that. Of course, you guys probably remember Bruce from, um, we did a show on him on out of Africa or into, into Africa, Africa, into Africa. Yeah. Which was actually, it's, I still think it's like our third or fourth most downloaded episode of all time. Wow. Yeah. That was fantastic. And you know, what's good is after that episode, he was getting all this mainstream coverage, I believe, or somewhat mainstream on that theory. Like that theory was really gaining some headway. Yeah. Yeah, it was a huge episode. Like that's going to be one of those paradigm shifting things. The whole out of Africa thing will be bullshit in a few years. It'd be interesting to have like him and Randall on at the same time, or him yeah, and Graham Hancock, totally. or something like that. Yeah. It'd be cool. Yeah. So they were great. I mean, we talked about it's about this uh, intervention, like eight hundred thousand years ago. There's a bunch of different sort of uh, evidences pointing towards that. I don't have the jingle board. No, you don't have the jingle. That's too bad. Oh, it's going to be a jingle-less intro. Oh, that's... Everyone just fucking shut it off. Uh, hey, why don't you bring him up to speed on CAC? Oh, we got to... Oh, yeah, we got to talk about that, too. Yeah, so, you, you give them a run on that. I'm going to go run and get... <laughs> what? Or maybe Brody. Could you run and get the jingle board, bro? It's like... I think it's in the porch right there. In the porch? In the porch of the house, or maybe Anyways, gotta, somewhere in right in that... You got to finish your intro. Uh, Graham Dunlop, Graham, oh. Graham. You don't have a special Grahamism? No, I don't have. You don't have one ready? You don't even have a little pad of paper there where you're looking? How about Graham? I'm sick of driving Dunlop. <laughs> 17 hour drive the other day. Was that what it was? Yeah, I think it was 17. Straight through? Straight through, buddy. Did that give you memories of Paradigm? Yeah, it did. Did you, uh, how about Astral Fanboy did I use? I think I used that. No, I, no, I don't think you used Astral Fanboy. Lucidly Challenged? Did I use that one already? Naked Tanner. Naked Tanner? Yeah. Uh, I think he used that too. Got to start crossing them out. Yeah. Did you drive the whole way? No, uh, failed helped me drive a little bit on the way back. I drove the whole way down. But you stopped. I got tired early. It was weird. I got tired early. The coffee sometimes makes me tired. It's like it has an opposite effect. Mm-hmm. If you have too much. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah. So I had a couple naps on the way back and failed drove and then, yeah, it was good. So we, what we're talking about is a little trip, fantastic trip to Oregon coast to meet some, some listeners and some fellow podcasters and a bunch of people that have been hanging out in the chats. There's like 18 or 20 of us. It yeah. We was, got a good, good group pick. It definitely was a blast. I did a ton of driving. Yeah. We did all that driving. We did 4,700 kilometers. So that'd be what about, probably about 30, 3,200 miles, 3,200 miles or so. Huh. That's a shame. 
It's okay. That's no okay. jingles. No, no jingles. jingles. Next time. Um, so we, because uh, I went the long way to Oregon through California. We drove to Seattle, seen some guys there. But um, well, you can't go from Seattle to California without going through Oregon. Yeah, we went right past Eastside. Right. We actually stopped by, checked out the house. And oh, then, you did? Then okay. get back on the highway. Okay. Because we couldn't check in. So you did the Oregon coast then? We did the 101 all the way down, yeah. yeah. That's the coast, the Oregon coast, Second right? time I've done it, yeah. Yeah. We went all the way down to Crescent City. Yeah. Drove back down the Redwood Highway and then went up to visit Ephraim in Portland. Did you stop at Pacific City at all? Do you oh, no, that's California, I think. Yeah, we were in Pacific City. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I used to camp there as a kid. No, yeah, that's in Oregon. Yeah. We went down there. We had 1,000 Trails membership as kids. We were going to rent dune buggies, but uh, it was raining. So we just kept driving. But yeah, we drove the coast. It was beautiful. It's the second time I've done it in eight months. No. Yeah, the second time I've done it in nine months. Hmm. But it's a great drive. I highly recommend it if you haven't done it. And, uh, yes, we went down to Crescent City, came back up and went to Ephraim, checked out the Antifa headquarters there in Portland. And, uh, yeah, and then went, met everyone out on the coast. But I drove, out of those 3,200 miles, I'll, I'll go with miles since we're mostly American listeners, I probably drove 2,700 of them. Yeah. I like driving. Yeah, Especially if it's my truck. Yeah, me too. You know, Especially then I just feel like yeah, driving, yeah. crank the tunes and just go. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't do the whole way back. We made it to Bonners. Yeah. I was pushing it, but it's like after Bonners, you got to fucking deal with the border. And then it's fucking a long way to Cranbrook yet. Yeah. yeah. And that's a fucking There's haul, a couple man. pretty big stretches there. You skip Bonners and then there's nothing for two hours. So yeah. that's a haul. And yeah. that's if yeah. you, you got it. You got, yeah. That's, that's a, if that's you breeze through the border. Yeah. But we've seen some shit in the sky there. Seen some. Well, you said Moving satellites. Stuff. Yeah, I'm assuming they're satellites. Yeah, this is cool, cool. You're probably just thinking that's what Graham and them see. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I think I actually said that. I know. Yeah. I knew you'd say that. Yeah. I was going to call you on it when you said when you we were talking with somebody. The photographer. Yeah. And like, oh, I saw some stuff. I'm like, oh yeah, what satellites? I'm like, you know, you know, you make it seem like that's all we see. Did I? Yeah. Because that's what I'm thinking, but yeah, I didn't I know, know it was but... coming off like that. <laughs> Maybe I was just really sensitive and I was picking up on it. Could, I don't think you, you, you might not have come on, off on that. You didn't like, pick up on me picturing because I realized that I'd forgot the stuff that Shameless sent us home with. And I was like, Grandma, grab it. And I like consciously. No, it was, I thought it was somebody I else's. I pictured you putting it into the suitcase. And, no. <laughs> that, that was enough. Ain't no text or anything. Just, <laughs> no. a, just a fucking Mental picture message. in your mind. Yeah. You weren't listening. Why would I think that that was even ours? I, I showed mean, it nobody to you. You even came t- in that night and I was like, look at all the stuff Sean got us. No. Yeah. That was somebody Bigfoot else. multi-tool. No. Never saw the Bigfoot multi-tool until when I was about to leave and I was scouting around the place and it was on oh, the table. Of course. And I thought that's somebody's multi-tool. I'm not going to take something off the table I don't even know is, was for us. Hmm. Yeah. Touche. Yeah. Communication. It was good though. How'd you enjoy the coast? That was the first time yeah. you've seen it. No, no, no. I've been down the coast before. Oh, have as you? As a kid. We used to drive down there as kids. Oh, right. Down the 101. Not as kids, but you know, the family vacation. Well, it must have been. Trails. How many years went? Just one carload or two? One, what do you mean? Down this the time? coast, yeah. When you guys went that oh, afternoon. Oh, uh, three. Three, three carloads. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So that must have been the first time a bunch of you seen it. A bunch of people seen it. Yeah. I mean, it was nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you kind of, when you grow up in Vancouver and on the coast, it was very similar to... Vancouver is not a coast. It's got a giant island protecting it. Oh, my God. 
That's a, it's a coast. It's like dude. an inlet. Just because it's protected by tsunamis from tsunamis doesn't mean it's not a it's coast. It's not protected from tsunamis. Vancouver tsunami is. Would just go around. Vancouver and... is. No, it doesn't go around <laughs> the fucking island. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. The BC coast doesn't look like that to me. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, north, north. Yeah, yeah, it does. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> I'd like to head out that way again soon, actually. Yeah. Up, do the BC coast up to Alaska or something. Yeah. And it kind of reminds me of Vancouver Island as well, a little bit. Vancouver Island is fucking cool. Yeah. What a great place to live that would be. But, I mean, the best part about it was, it, you know, it was a whole bunch of guys, and it was super casual, and nobody was impatient or upset. I mean, we all just did our own thing, but everybody sort of hung out, went to the beach, went out for bites to eat, and just lots of good conversation, played some games. Like, it was just really, really cool. And, you know, obviously lots of cool stuff to talk about. That's right. You know, just a bunch of really cool, open-minded guys just finally meeting in person for the first time. Yep. Well, a few of them we have met before. Yeah. A couple of them were yep. returnees. Yeah, it was cool. So to, that's always to, cool. To, to meet some of the guys who played D&D with in person, that was awesome. You guys have tried to play D&D. You guys played all sorts of crazy magic games. I didn't play the magic game. I don't play magic. You were playing the game the whole time. I wasn't playing. That's a different watching? thing. That was a different game. It was a board game. Like I was playing a board game. It's called Betrayal. Betrayal? House of, yeah, House on the Hill or something like that. It was a haunted like house game. Like, okay. It was pretty cool. It was really fun. Here, can you press play on this? Not really a, on a your bit mic? of a gamer, but you know. Get out a pen and paper and write this down. Or a pencil. This is what we're Why reduced to. You could back it show. off a bit. Can I do my? Can I do the synchro first? Because it's about. It's, well, that's the it only has to jingle do with, I have. Okay, do it later because it has to do with it's a with it's CAC? a kind of yeah. yeah. Oh, that wasn't breakable. <laughs> Darren just dropped our gift. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read this amazing email because it kind of kind of overlaps, the segues from our contact at the cabin on the Oregon coast. They're clean. Hey, Darren and Graham. Who's Darren? <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. What was I doing with my grand? Love your show and was long overdue to sign up as a supporter. Finally signed up yesterday for an 11-11 a month, and Darren is right. I do feel like a better person. Oh, boy. I found you on Spotify waiting for a Mysterious Universe episode. I searched for Electric Universe Theory, and there you and Wall Thornhill were. It was Destiny. So get this synchro. <clears throat> Back in February, I was traveling from Wenatchee, Washington, to Portland. Oh, that's suggest I shouldn't say that. Portland. Ooh, did he make it out of Portland okay? He must have. He wrote the email. That's interesting you would ask that question. Okay, keep going. <laughs> this is fucking the most compound fucking synchro I've ever read or heard or... So... Got a pile of the stuff from the floor by my feet now. Our new, our newsletter guy lives in Wenatchee, and he traveled to Portland. Yeah, for a contact of the cabin. That's right. Well, a bunch of us were in Portland. Yeah, for yeah. ten of us, I'd say. So he was uh, he was traveling to Oregon to help a friend with a kitchen remodel. I'm a contractor. That's interesting. You guys were just talking about contractors like before this. Before we started recording, come on, this. take it easy. No, I, I, I'm telling you, I'm going to add up every little thing here because it gets pretty crazy. Well, I am a contractor. Oh yeah, so yeah. am I. <laughs> so I loaded up my truck and headed down the Columbia Gorge. 
preface a couple weeks earlier, I tweeted Darren a pic of my truck and made a dumb synchro joke. I then forgot about it since Darren didn't tweet me back. So here I am a few weeks later driving through the Columbia Gorge and the episode I'm listening to on the drive down. Is there Darren, a picture of his vehicle? There is later, yeah. There is here, yeah. Should I be checking the Twitter? No, 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 no. Okay. I'm really not on the Twitter very much anymore, so sorry. So in the episode on the drive down, Darren is talking about his trip to Oregon, Washington, and was talking about how awesome the gorge area is. I thought it was cool, but a small synchro. The gorge is huge, and it takes hours to drive through. Now, do I do I express my compound sure. synchro while we're doing this? Should I interrupt it? Go on. When I got this email, you're driving on the gorge. Going from oh, you would have been because I remember I got I was cc'd on this. I just didn't read it. Right. Because I seen it as a synchro and I was in. I was actually in the gorge the day after, but I was on my trip. I think I probably looked at this email. They didn't read when it yet. failed, started driving. No, no, I didn't read it yet, but oh. probably saw it. I saw it the day I was driving through the gorge. Okay. Which is pretty crazy in itself. I don't think he knew. What we day were was traveling. it? This email came through on Thursday, the day I left for the trip to the. Oregon. Oh, going the. So you were. But going, I didn't. Been but I didn't read any emails that day. And not, not that that really matters. I mean, that's just... I was in what, Oregon when I got the email. Yeah. I was in Portland. So I get to my friend. So I'll, I'll get back to the email. So I get to my friends and we bust out the whole kitchen remodel in a long weekend. The entire time I was talking to him about the podcast and conspiracy theories, but the last day I went heavy into the deep state in 9-11. It was weird also. Every day I went... There would be, I would glance at my watch and would have number synchros starting at 1111, 1234, 1248, and then 111. Every day that weekend, it was weird. Those are significant numbers to me. And I've seen them regularly, but not all four, three days in a row. And I was not watching my watch. I was working. So we finished the job and I'm getting ready to head home. I hop in my truck, put on the latest episode and hit the road. It was starting to get deeper. The episode was 270. Joseph Farrell, all about the deep state. I thought that was cool. I'd been talking about this exact topic all weekend. I also noticed I hit play and left his house at exactly 111. So I'm driving home, and about 15 minutes in, I hear Darren read my truck synchro that I sent him on Twitter. Nice. It so I did dumb. get to it. It was dumb about how the universe is telling me to get a new lift. Darren appropriately, appropriately gave me a 5.2. But I thought, hey, cool, it's a synchro. I was driving that same truck. Of course, he was driving that same truck. Here's where it gets weird, as if it's not weird enough already. No, I'm waiting for it to get weird as well. Oh, yeah, Jesus. Here's where it gets weird. There was a huge snowstorm over the whole Northwest that day, and my drive home was sketchy, to say the least. I finally hit Yakima and then get out of the storm. At this point, I'm on to a new episode with your handler, James in the intro on Dr. Ram interviewing. I was driving down a perfectly straight stretch of road when the traffic slowed in front of me. I tapped my brakes and then, oh shit, I was on black ice. My bed slid around. I hit the grass median sideways and the momentum flipped me. I flipped and rolled about three times and landed about two feet from the oncoming traffic. I was sideways, had to kick out my windshield to get out. And I was, of course, in shock, but I was okay. Just some cracked ribs and a concussion. Truck was totaled. Phone was lost. It was a mess. Jesus. <clears throat> Good vibes, buddy. Glad you're okay. 
I got everything taken care of in the next few days, and luckily with my insurance, everything worked out okay. I remember a few days later about the synchro events that day and that Darren had read my truck synchro that same day and rated me a 5.2. When I went back to see what time I had wrecked, it was 6.25. From the call, oh, from the call record my wife got from informing her of the, of the wreck. Doing the math, that is 5.2 hours into my trip. Nice. I don't know the significant, significance of it. Maybe... The universe didn't like my joke. The truck was sweet. And it was one thing that I was materialistically proud of. Maybe that's why it had to go. Anyway, I was listening to the Craig Flowers episode, and that was the last straw. I had to be a supporter. I'd been thinking about it for months. I still owe you guys for the last five months. I was listening for free. New studio build? Question mark. You guys are awesome and one of the most valuable parts of my day. I don't know how else to describe it other than conscious expa- consciousness expanding. Please keep up the awesome work. Would love to have a Washington meetup if you're ever in the area. I live super close to the Dry Falls area. I'm off grid on a mountaintop at 4,200 feet elevation, overlooking the Columbia River, 3,500 feet below me. Young, driest evidence all over. See the pictures attached. One of my one of my right one of right out of my house and one of my poor truck. I uh, I went to Dry Falls on Monday. No, so yeah, Monday I was in Dry Falls. Yeah. The Monday before you got that email. And the weird thing is before I and I mean this is now sort of splitting hairs here, but we were talking We've about Je- hairs we were talking about Justin in the newsletter right before we started this intro. And Justin drove from Wenatchee to Oregon. To Portland. To Portland. What else to Portland say, specifically. Is, like Is there a picture? <clears throat> pull my computer down. Yeah, there's a couple pictures. There's one of his view and one of uh his wrecked truck. Here's a wrecked truck. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So glad he's okay. Sorry about the accident, and thanks for the email, and thanks for your support. I hope I didn't make your truck crash. No. He needed a new truck. It was a blessing in disguise. Hopefully. Be less proud of this truck, I guess. I mean, maybe if you would have ra- if you would have rated him like a 6.4, he would have been 6.4 hours to the I... through the through the black ice. Or headlong into a semi. (laughs) So you want to rate this one then? I mean, it's pretty compound. I mean, with everything that we talked about, the fact that I I was driving down the gorge the day that... 6.9 so he can get lucky with his wife? (laughs) (laughs) I'll give him a 7.7. All right. That's a pretty good one. Plus 4.2. So what's that put us at? No, no. no. Keep it at 7.77. Then it's like the number thing. You added an extra 7 in there, but whatever. We'll give you that. That was a good one. Especially considering we were just down there again. Well, well, he emailed us. We were that's pretty both crazy. Down heading to that the exact. Like he probably emailed me that day. Justin drove from Wenatchee to Portland. Yes, that was the day Justin drove from Wenatchee to Portland, and I was in Portland. And we just talked about Justin. Before and I was in Portland, and you were on your way to Portland. Yeah. Portland is lost. Down the gorge. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Let's no, about I don't that. want to get into that. What? No. I thought I was looking forward to that. What, really? Get into the Portland to the, the Portland is lost thing. The Portland Antifa yeah. stuff. I mean, you come on, you got to tell these stories. Well, you met a guy yeah. that fucking killed a guy that had a fucking hammer and this guy sharpening axes and he stuff. He tattooed and the, me. He tattooed. What did you never show me your tattoo? You got a tramp I'll show stamp? you after. Yeah, I got a tramp. Got a matching tramp stamp with your best friend. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys get matching tattoos? No. Oh, you didn't? <laughs> no. Did you talk about it? No. 
It was never. Actually, I was just, I was only in the tattoo shop because Kyle was getting a new tattoo. Or he was getting, yeah, he was getting one on his finger touched up. I wasn't even going to get a tattoo. But then when all the crazy shit started happening with the InfoWars and the podcasts and the fucking. So tell, well, tell, come on, get into it. Well, first of all, Portland is fucked. Like the whole downtown Portland area has really, really gone downhill, in my opinion, since the last time I was there. How long ago was that? Two years. Since the first time I was there, two years ago. Which isn't that long, really. But I mean, the first time I was there, I only seen like one or two little saw, saw scene. Saw. Okay. Hmm. I only saw. That's better. <laughs> A few tents, and they were all kind of in one spot, but, uh, you know, it just looked like people that were down on their luck. Um, but now this time, I mean, I couldn't fucking believe how many tents. There's tents everywhere. Like, I was looking, and I mean, maybe I'm fucking asshole, but I was looking for, because I have all my life in my truck while I'm traveling. So if fucking someone breaks my window and takes my shit, I'm fucked. So, I mean, I'm everywhere I go, there's fucking tents everywhere. And I don't know. It seems to me that makes it seem weird. You know what I mean? Coming from Canada. You're not, be, you're not trying to be. Um, I'm not trying to be. But these aren't just tents full of fucking people down on their luck anymore. They're tents full of people that look fucking sketchy as fuck to me. And I don't. I mean, I. Why have, are they. Like, why? I mean, I seen a t more Antifa. I never thought that I would really see an Antifa person in my life. You know, like you see them on social media and stuff like that, but I'm not expecting to run into it, especially not en masse. Not into, you're not expecting to run into the home base of Antifa. Yeah. Well, then I found out that Portland is considered their home base. That's where their quote unquote leader is and all that. But I seen, you know, maybe a hundred over the course of a day and a half. And then, and these and guys, I was and walking somebody, didn't somebody see them Mike sharpening an axe? With his, with his, with his mask on, polishing his ball peen hammer. Mike's like he was just glaring at me. That's Mike's like the nicest guy you ever meet. Oh, I know, totally. And um, so we were talking to the, we went into downtown Portland and we walked over the bridge because there's nowhere to fucking park downtown. So we parked on the north side of the bridge, um, which seemed, it was nice enough. We parked there. Um, there was some tents there, but there was no, it didn't seem like anyone was home. All these people have dogs too, which is weird. Because they get an extra $300 yeah, a I, month. we hadn't got there yet. Okay. But, um, people aren't going to like that part. Um, so we walked over the one bridge. It seemed nice enough. And, uh, is that the shit bridge? No, that was the, I forget what it's called. I can't think of it right now. But anyway, we walked over the one we were walking around downtown Portland seemed nice enough, but we only, after like three blocks, it got fucking sketchy fast. And we were like, Whoa, probably made a wrong turn there somewhere. So we're trying to get out of wherever the fuck we are. So sketchy as in because there's just a tent city kind of thing? No, we wasn't even just... that. No, the downtown problems we were in weren't even tent city. It was just, like, I think we just walked into a real cracky area. Like, it seemed like we walked into a, towards a bunch of crackheads. and right. Yeah, you know, right. like, um, <clears throat> just, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like Hastings. Yeah, a lot yeah. like Hastings. Yeah. Yeah. So we're like, okay, time to fucking move on. So yeah. we found, we've ducked in and we found out and we ducked into this little souvenir shop with a nice little guy, like the nicest guy you ever met. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's nice. He's like, and we were like, yeah, fuck. We took a couple of wrong turns. We were there. He's like, oh yeah, man. He's like, you got to watch around here. And he's like, um, when you go back, don't take the, Mor the Morrison bridge. And I'm like, well, why not? And he's like, because it's just fucking stinks like shit. It's full of shit. And I was like, I was half joking because of the no agenda stuff. I was like, is it human shit? And he's like, <laughs> Yeah, man, it's unbelievable amounts of human shit and dog shit. And I'm like, oh my God. 
And he's like, yeah, he's like, they, they started shitting on the train. And this isn't the tattoo guy. This is a nice little guy downtown with it, that owns a souvenir shop. And he's like, yeah, they started shitting on the train tracks now. Because when the trains oh, go by. Yeah, because if you shit on the tracks and the train goes by, then just. Well, why, what's the purpose of that? Because they're probably getting sick of fucking walking around all the piles of shit when they go to the bathroom. I don't know. So it's a way so, to get rid of the shit? Because it yeah, disperses when the trains it? go by. Oh, my it's God. really just splattering it around, though. Oh but my anyway, God. so I mean, I you assume he's a little over the top. So we're like, okay, we'll take the other bridge, the Burnside Bridge or whatever. And we walked over top of that. And like, you're walking over a giant, I don't know what river that is, but it's a big enough river. You're walking over the fucking thing. And all I can smell is piss. I couldn't believe it. Um, so then we got over the other side of the bridge and that's when we started running into lots of Antifa people. A lot of people living in smashed out cars and tents and. So they give they built fences around a lot of the bridges anymore to try and keep the people from living on into their out. But um, yeah, man, it was fucking sketchy as fuck. I couldn't believe it. And then we went to the tattoo shop so Kyle get the tattoo, and he's like, um, he's like, yeah, man. He's like, I've had in the last fucking year, I've had my shop windows smashed out twice because he's got big American flags and everything, and uh, his truck fucked up once, and. Uh, they tried to rob and rape the girls that own the nail shop next door. And I mean, I was kind of surprised because this is all shit that I didn't think Antifa was up to. They're not supposed to be up to. But he's like, yeah, all these guys do is drink and cause trouble. And, um, which I could kind of see because actually I think Garrett sent me a link of the, one of the guys who's one of the uh, le- leading members of Antifa just got his second fucking sexual assault charge. So yeah, but he said it's just it's fucking crazy. He said, "Did I, he say something like you're behind the enemy?" enemy yeah, he's like, make, he's like, you're behind enemy lines down here." He's like, "Fucking, I wouldn't be down here after eight thirty. And this guy's carrying a gun, strapped on his belt because he's like, and he said he's had to use it in his parking lot before because they pulled a knife on him. So I mean, I don't know what to believe and what not to, but I mean, I know that not just me, but everyone that showed up at contact that spent time in Portland had the same thing to say that there's a weird uneasiness there. And it's, and I mean, I seen it firsthand. There's a bunch of, it seems like I, I like to, and, and it seemed like the other, the people that aren't Antifa or whatever the fuck they are, are super polite, like crazy polite, way more polite. Everyone's saying hi, holding doors for you, smiling at you, making eye contact. But I think that's because it's like an overreaction to fucking, their city's about to rip itself apart. That's I really get the sense that Portland is about to rip itself apart. And for when I was talking to the one guy, and he was saying that out of out of one in only one in fifty four homeless people in Portland was even born in the state of Oregon. And that's because when you move to, I think he was saying when you move to Portland now. I don't know. I've never I fact checked any of this, but what he told me that when you move to Portland, if you're homeless, you can register, and they give you a little debit card. You get three hundred bucks a month, and then if you have a dog. You're a caregiver. You had another 300 bucks a month. So you just take your 600 bucks a month and live in a tent. So a lot of these Antifa are getting 600 bucks a month, probably. Yeah. yeah. And drinking And maybe lot. whatever else directly from some other organization. Yeah, who, who knows? I mean, and, and it wasn't even just downtown. I was over, I went to the store a little later over by where I was staying, and he walked right in. You know, a couple of them walked right in with the, he didn't have his mask on, he had it on the back of his head. But I mean, he's still... They look. Is he carrying a hatchet or? A- I didn't see anything, but he had anti-fascist tattooed on his fucking quads. 
On his quads? Like they real tattoos? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Temp- he, was wearing, he was wearing crazy short shorts. <laughs> his short shorts would have made your short shorts look like bell bottoms. <laughs> Put it that way. They're tight too, eh? Oh, yeah. We were just like, oh, I didn't want to make eye contact because I don't know if the guy's going to hit me with a little bat or something because I'm a fascist. How are you, why are you a fascist? I don't know. You're a half Indian. I own a Canadian. truck. You're I have a Canadian. job. <laughs> Pay taxes. I'm part of the problem. What well, did did that guy corroborate the shitbridge story? Yeah, actually, I think it was that guy that added because I mentioned the shitbridge then, and I think yeah. it was him that added the shitting on the tracks. Right. Caveat. Right. Yeah, he was like, make no mistake. So what I don't understand is why aren't they a little bit better organized with some porta potties and stuff like that? If they're if they're if they're allowing all these people. Intense and in car, like if they're allowing that to happen downtown, because obviously they're paying somebody's paying yeah. three hundred, let's say six hundred, three hundred dollars. Why aren't they just putting some fucking porta potties down there? Something and like dealing with it properly. You would think so. You oh, would think so. It's it's so it's. it's weird, I man. couldn't believe it. I I honestly couldn't believe. What it. I don't understand is the violence part of it. Yeah, I know. No, but that's but that's the but that's the overarching thing. Like you'd think any kind of movement nowadays would be anti-violent, right? Don't 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 perpetuate violence at any cost. Really, like that's wrong, right? Physical violence, physical violence is like you're past the line. But that's all. That's what they're about. Yeah. Oh, that's so weird. It's fucked up thing, man. I'm telling you, I wasn't expecting it. You want to do the jingle now? Sure. Are we running out of time? We're already out of time. Get out a pen and paper and write this down. Or a pencil. Why don't you send some physical mail to the Grimerica Show? At P.O. Box 163033. Next line. Uh-huh. 100-815, comma, 17th Avenue. Ooh, where'd the books come from? Next line. Uh-huh. You gotta Category. fade it. Just shut it off. You've ruined it. <laughs> This, uh, this that package, I, I just opened it up a little ahead There's of time. The There's a note in there somewhere. Um, it's from our favorite dude on the in Vancouver Island, Nick. Nick, uh, he's the one that sent us the salt and uh, the re- the the resonance machine. Oh, is that this little the yeah? So human he resonator. Yeah, is that who sent the Humboldt shirt too? The Humboldt shirt. Getting stoned with Bigfoot. I don't in think the so. Bigfoot socks. No, I don't think so. No, oh, man, no, no that so. was. Uh, uh, now you put me on the spot. No, I, I can think of who it is now. I just okay. can't put it, mention it. I can read this, right? I think so. D-Ron and G-Ham. I like that. A.K.A. The Fellers. Oh, boy. On a recent show you were on, you mentioned a universal brain. So I was reminded of this hyperspace book. Don't worry. I did Windex these books. An old used bookstore trick. What's that mean? Because they're dusty and dirty and stuff. Oh, you Windex just the covers yeah. or the inside yeah. as well? No, just the covers. Okay. I ran across these books in the late 80s. Remember, no internet. I contacted him a couple of times. He lived in Victoria also. No idea where he lives now. Somewhere around here still, as far as I know, but has zero web presence or contact info. Maybe a reason? Question mark? Mm. At the time, he said he was working on the definitive time travel book. Only he could do the complex illustrations, and that was if he could find a publisher. Never heard anything about it after that. He mentioned the books were a truth based on the times, 
and that there may have been small oversights on his part, but most is a solid argument. Everyone was afraid to break some eggs and state this obvious stuff, something to that effect. So I always have multiples of these for worthy folks. Everyone I give them to is deeply affected, and to this day I still think about stuff in them. So in that sense, they are a bit more than just another book. Wow. You will see things in your daily life a bit differently, even down to the hubcap motion on moving cars and even your cup of coffee. The inside cover flap states, this could be the most important book you have ever read. Wow. No joke. Which which Browse the index to get a feel. That's, um... So there's three, I think there's three books, but one of them is a paper. I think he's probably talking about that one that he's made copies of, maybe? Would that be the one? Can I read the title of that book? That's that's really interesting to me. What the flying saucer? Yeah. Can I read that? Can you pass that to me? No. I don't think that's the one he's talking about. So he sent us three no, books. No, he that, gave me the list here. What was it? The definitive time travel book? How to build a flying saucer and other proposals in speculative engineering. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, and then there's how you can explore the higher dimensions of space and time. Is this the one he was talking about? Is this, oh, this is the same book? No. It doesn't say the most. So I think, I think what he's talking about is because he probably hands that out as, as paper, like he's sent a cop, copies of uh, some papers. Like he's probably copied that book and then he'll make copies for people and hand that out. That's yeah, this is the, one, the right? delusion of global warming, the hyperbolic Ooh. trajectory. Maybe not. These are papers, maybe. The chi, the key. There is nothing mystical about chi. It's as natural as sound and electricity. Awesome. Anyways, love the gifts to the P.O. Box. Oh, yeah. I love getting stuff in the P.O. Box. Let me finish the note. The higher dimension ones goes for big money, usually on eBay, etc. The other stuff, that's that one, right? Higher dimensions. Yeah. Usually on eBay, etc. The other stuff, good stuff there. Printouts of old PDF text files. Can email it if you like. Spin the water. Nice. Is there another book down here? And then this one we got here is from. Uh, no, that's probably one from a Charlie Robinson. Then. Oh, oh. This is our. Uh, Octopus of Global Control from yeah. the studio. This is our manual of global conspiracy. This is the one you've been waiting for. Yeah. Look at that, eh? That's thick. That's what she said. <laughs> the words are so small, too. So we got a note in the cover. Thanks so much for having me on Grimerica. It was like strange brew and coast to coast and weed. (laughs) You two are the hilarious voices of a more aware generation and the world is a better place for it. Don't stop doing what you are doing because this show is just about to blow up. Anytime you want me back on, I'm totally up for it. Enjoy the conspiracy Bible or use it as a doorstop. Right on. Thanks, Charlie. That's awesome. I'll give that to you for a while. because fantastic. You've been waiting for that one. Somebody yeah, thanks, somebody Charlie. asked me a recommendation of uh, deep state books or that's everything, and I I, I told him this one because it's like a basically a Bible and it's got full of bullet points. It's the stuff like if you want to bullet point stuff on vaccines or nine eleven or whatever, it's in here. So stuff yeah. dreams are made of. That's the rabbit hole. Right on. So oh so so we found some books in an old bookstore. So we went shopping in in uh, Seaside the old bookstore. 
found a couple cool spiritual ones and, and we found ones from the 1960s. Did you see these ones? You saw them, right? About the, about, uh, about the security of the new global order. And it was a textbook from the 1960s. It was two volumes. Fantastic. Talking about the EU and the creation of the, that was very strange. Total propaganda. So anyways, I got the UFO quote here. If you wouldn't mind just doing a little jingle. Down and ground, we're going deep. <laughs> it's a profound UFO quote of the week. Hey, that's all you get. That's pretty good. That was pretty good. Words to ponder and critique. It's the profound okay. UFO <laughs> quote of the week. I my computer's messed up here. I can't get to it. Oh my god. <clears throat> oh, what happened? Hey, give me a sec. Here we go. Here's your profound UFO quote of the beat. Week. How can be? Graham Dunlop. Oh, this is really frustrating. Oh, no. I, see, That's not going to help okay, this problem. Okay, it's coming. It's coming. You got it? Yeah, no, soon, soon, soon. A dollar see, the problem is I had it labeled and everything, and then somehow it's my computer is, I think it's ever since I put that CD in that we got, that unlabeled oh, CD. Really By the way, have... fuck you, James Nation. I know you were skydiving. All weekend. Oh, no way. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. He didn't. Here it is. Based on my experience in fighter tactics, it is my opinion that the object was controlled by something having visual contact with us. The power and acceleration were beyond the capability of any known U.S. aircraft. That was an F-94 pilot after encountering encountering a UFO in 1952. There you have it. There you have it, folks. There you have it. The definitive quote of the week. Uh, with that, since we're already 10 minutes late for our next interview. Oh, really? Um. So yeah, that's okay though. I'm talking to I'm talking to him now. So okay. he had forgotten about it completely. No so way. We're good to oh, go. Perfect. Yeah. See, that's a, we have, well, that's why we got to always send those reminders out. You never know. Uh, Is he still good to go? Because we can easily postpone. That's what it. I told him, and he said, "No, let's just do it." Okay. So, all right, all right guys, enjoy the chat. Yeah, with, with the, uh, Fentons, the Fentons. This was a fantastic show. It was like probably if one. If you of my thought favorites. one Fenton was good, try two. Keyword tectites. That's the keyword. Keyword in calves because yours are wasting away. Really? I don't know. A little bit. I think you really? better get back to lag day, bro. I don't do legs. There's your problem. All right, guys. <laughs> Enjoy the chat.
right, we've got Bruce Fenton and Daniela Fenton with us today. Uh, we had Bruce on a little while back uh, talking about his book. Um, it was a fascinating show, one of our favorites, The Into the Africa Theory of Human Evolution. And uh, Bruce and Danielle have been a, sort of a husband and wife research team writing about paleoanthropology and archaeology and shamanism and mythology. Actually, One of our all-time most downloaded shows yes, is it, 223 with Bruce. Yeah, with Bruce. And it reminds me of another um, couple we had on that was writing awesome books and researching together. You guys actually... I'm One great to, year. We'll have to, yeah, we'll have to connect you guys. Like It would be, it'd be incredible. So the, the new book out... Um, that Danielle has written is hybrid human scientific evidence of our 800,000 year old alien legacy. Um, I just finished it. It's awesome. Looking forward to chatting to you guys about it. Thanks for coming on the show again. Thank you very much for having me back. And I'm glad to hear that a few people actually wanted to download me last time. That's, that sounds good. It's promising. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the last time I checked, I think the, uh, the only person with more, well, there's a few episodes with more downloads than you, but they were all Randall Carlson. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, I know that he was, yeah, he's which very is, popular. yeah, and your work kind of ties in together a little bit, which, and we had John right after Randall, so yeah, you were, you were a big hit with the uh, Grimerica audience, so yeah, we were eager to have you back, and uh, Ancient Aliens is always a fun topic. Well, you know, you know what yeah. else, you know what else I liked about the last show, it's interesting when we have a guest on and they're talking about uh, paradigm changing scientific evidence and then you start seeing it in the mainstream a little bit more and more so Absolutely. you know we, yeah. i was getting your yeah. emails and getting your uh your um your uh messages about you know all this new new evidence coming forth in the mainstream so it must feel pretty good to have that sort of vindication a little bit that you know you're you're helping push the the paradigm a little bit yeah it does seem that when i've had a couple of scientists who said to me look you know there's a good chance that people are borrowing from your work and just not crediting you um, oh. because, you know, it was a bit uncanny the way that the news stories started flowing on the exact topics that I'd covered. Um, but because because I'm not an academic, they would never credit me. Oh, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he did say, you know, there's a good chance you'll find that they'll never, to their dying days, they'll never say they read your book and then wrote an article on it because they'll have to admit that they're taking something from a non-academic. <laughs> does that does that bother you at all, or does it just matter? Well, it, that, it does it matter that? It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is frustrating, and I have reached out to a lot of journalists. So it's ironic, you know, that then later they'll cover the same stories, yeah, but yeah. from somebody else. Yeah. So I did. I did uh, read your book, and it was awesome, Danielle. I, I I could really. I there was some things in there that I wasn't really expecting, and it was great. And I can't wait to talk about all these different events that do seem to correlate to something happening around seven hundred eighty or eight hundred thousand years ago. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the genesis of the book and maybe, you know, how how that I guess how that all came about? Well, there was a series of events um, that you know about um, having read the book um, that happened one after the other. Um, Bruce, I'll just go back a bit to the full story. Bruce had just finished his um, um, last book and I sort of said, well, I kind of feel it's time that we start talking about this other kind of stuff. I sort of took him off tracks. He was ready to continue his line of work with the more scientific <laughs> genetic stuff. Yeah, and the Into America, you know, which I still have to finish at some point. Oh, right, yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. And um, I sort of tore him away from that and I said, Bruce, I think there's something pressing and important that we need to sort of talk about. Let's go back to the time when I started having a series of events that um, that occurred 
And I thought, well, okay, I think right now is like the perfect moment to sort of like shift into that a little bit and change gears with um, the direction that Bruce was going. Um, and because he's such a good researcher, um, we started having a look at um, events around that time frame um, and put the book together. But my um, <laughs> it was prompted by the other book actually. Well, yeah. Um, I had um, a series of events that took place during 2012 where to me it felt like an abduction, but it wasn't an abduction of the body. It was abduction of the consciousness and the mind. Um, and I found myself, well, I can only call it like time traveling back in time to 7th century Palenque in Mexico and having a series of contact um, with other beings um, in a location that actually exists here um, and sort of like going through a whole life worth of situations with hybrid humans, with Pleiadians, with tall greys, with short greys, with a whole other series of beings, so to speak, who are on their own agenda, some of them working with humans, some of them working without them. Um, and to me it was quite eye-opening. Um, so I thought, well, there's a lot of this stuff going on where, and, you know, I had been sort of looking in um, online you know, there must be a lot of people that are having weird time slips. I can only put it down to that, um, that are not talking about it. I, I mean, I couldn't be the only one having this kind of thing where you're having this contact um, on a different, you know, time frame and sort of like coming back to tell it. But the interesting thing about the one that I had is that it lasted over a year mm. um, and it would happen involuntarily and, there were always consequences. Um, if I would go to that time, it would happen during the night time. It wouldn't happen during the day. And I'd literally go to sleep and maybe several hours would pass and then I would suddenly find myself there. Hmm. So it was, a, it was a pretty challenging time. And, I mean, there were physical events that happened to me there that when I'd wake up here, I'd have them with me. Like if I got into a fight with someone on the other side, which, which happened kind of, Sort of frequently, I'd um I'd have one time I, I mean I remember and it's it's quite emotional because I remember my daughter coming into the bedroom and thinking that Bruce had beaten me up <laughs> and I had black eyes, um like I'd literally been bashed. So yeah, there was there was a whole series of things. Um, I hadn't secretly bashed her. Just no, <laughs> um, and I really clearly remember on one occasion that um I'd been given something to wipe my memory on that side. And on this side, Bruce was holding my head and I was throwing up over the side of the bed, um, feeling poisoned. So, I mean, it was quite full on and it was exhausting. Um, and it was something like that I wouldn't wish on anyone because it, it just, it, it was harrowing because it kept happening and I wouldn't know when it was going to happen. Um, and to have it go on for a year and have it like three, four, five times a week for several hours, it was really, it was really, really daunting. And, you know, the one thing that used to scare me is knowing that I was on that side, my body was on this side. Um, and what if I didn't come back? Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So what, yeah, what do you think, quite... what do you think trick like triggered that? Or what do you think that is? Is, is that, is that some, is that uh, like, cause it, it almost seems like past life stuff, but also um, it it's a little more intense than that in a way. So, yeah, I mean, because it does, you know, it goes a bit beyond what most people's descriptions of past life memories 
alike, you know, yeah. where you get to kind of obviously just replay. Obviously, if they're fully immersive normally, but those seemed far more interactive rather yeah. than yeah. simply being immersive. Because yeah. yeah. usually, you know, you just see things you've already done, but but she clearly still had an element of free will because, you know, she was able to go exploring around yeah. in this place, you yeah. know. So it was more like being dumped into a virtual reality world created by some kind of intelligence, you know, that, res- that looked like Palenque. But you know, th- whether that's really a time travel, whether someone's beaming a construct into her head, you know, we have no way to obviously know, no. but it was definitely more interactive the way she describes it to me than um, simply a memory, you know, a, just a straightforward memory. Yeah, it, it could be another like, form of these downloads. It that almost sounds like a similar to a DMT experience, except almost based in more yeah. of a reality. You know, DMT experiences always seem to end up in these, you know, very, very hyper-realistic realms, and you kind of instantly yeah. know you're not on Earth. So when you say yeah. that, you know you're in a... very long compared to DMT. Y- yeah, right exactly. Where... It's like a weird mix between DMT yeah. and ayahuasca, but... But the the part that's also weird is that it's taking place. You know, it seems to be taking place on this plane of reality. If you're, if it's a place that yeah, we like can in a go to, historical place. You know, so, so it's a very strange combination, and and um, we don't really have a specific term for it because of that. I mean, you know, because I'm quite honest in that. You know, because I've researched supernormal phenomena for a long time. I mean, um, and I think you have to recognize sometimes things do cross different boundaries. And it's not easy just to say, well, that's time travel or, or that's a past life. You know, the, the honest thing is to say, well, we don't know. You know, it could be someone beaming something into your head. It could yeah. be some kind of time travel. It could be, you know, some sort of, you know, a chemical or DMT related. We don't know is the truth. Um, but it obviously it appeared to be an exact copy of Palenque in ancient times yeah. and the way it played and, out. Um, one thing that I, I mean, that I, that I sort of did take back with me from that experience is that it felt more real. And, you know, as you know, with shamanic journeying, it can feel more real on that side than it can on this side. This feels like dull and it feels like non-realistic, whereas when you're on that shamanic journey and having done a lot of shamanic work while I was in Ecuador, um, that tends to be more liberating and it tends to be more like, oh, wow, this is what's really going on. Yeah. Yeah. And then the important thing is, like many of our guests, that these experiences have led to creative works, uh, very important, you know, that put now all of a sudden you yeah. put all together, together that experience and a bunch of other people's experiences and some other things that you wouldn't even think about that all correspond no. to this, this creative work. So that's, uh, no, that's, and I mean, we did speak to our co-authors um, who we wrote ancient aliens with in Australia. And they sort of said, because they work a lot with Aboriginals and they were like, well, that sounds like a rite of passage because the way I described when it would actually happen, it wasn't like going to sleep and having a dream. It was literally going to sleep and then suddenly being sucked through the wall of the bedroom um, and being dismembered physically cell by cell. It was it was horrifically painful. And every time it would happen um, to go there and to get back, it was like I'd been hit by a truck, literally yeah. being put back together. So it was painful. I was waking up in agony. Like I could feel my organs in my body just, you know, screaming like it was it was really, really painful. Um, and the one thing is that it well, Bruce says that he noticed that my personality changed after that and I became much more uptight about things and much more reactive. Um, he says that before this experience uh that I had that I was much more mellow and sort of like more down to earth and you know, sort of like, but now I find myself not as tolerant. Um and not wanting to sort of be around people too much. So it's it has shifted my personality. 
Good, bad, positive. Would you do it again? Was it worth it? <laughs> if I did it again, I would want one hit of the download and tell. to know what the purpose is. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's too soon to tell, right? Yeah. 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 I think sometimes with those things, you know, and obviously um, in general, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's happened in both of our lives, which, you know, they don't make sense in those moments. But when you zoom out, you know, you, yeah. you can see those patterns start to form where and you start to see kind of at least to some degree, a lot of the things have happened to us. Now I can see in the context of that, yeah, that there is some sort of, I would say, a contact with an intelligence, yeah. you know, which is orchestrating or at least prodding us in certain directions to have certain experiences and obviously i would also say is is probably causal to these more profoundly strange experiences because i mean we've had um for example we connected with a researcher called um leonard farer i don't know if you know his work he he, he writes about the pleiades in um he's got three books pleiades in the stone age i mean pleiades in um the new world pleiades in the old world um, and so he's looked through all the mythology, you know, the Pleiades. But his first book was actually um, to do with his experiences with a cha- well, partly to do with a, a channeling circle. And he was going to the um, the circle of. Do you remember that? What's the guy's name? I forgot it. Anyway, there's a guy that was involved with the Enfield Poltergeist case. One of the mediums from that. So it was quite um, Sherrick, Gerald Sherrick, I think it's called. Um, and anyway, so he was going to his development circle. This is dec- a few decades back. And in the circle, uh, they had a being come through who said he was a tribal like leader, you know, a village leader in Mexico, like centuries and centuries ago, a long time ago. Um, and keep in mind, we got, got this book from here. It's out of print. He sent it to us about a year ago. Um, so this was long after Danny's experiences. Uh, and in there, it describes this, this spirit saying to them, look, you know, I was there when these craft landed in my village in Mexico. These beings got out and said, we have come from beyond the time barrier. So they weren't simply space travelers. No. Uh, and then they said that, look, you know, we're going to give you this, some certain technologies, we're going to help them with certain things. And they said, before we go, we're leaving you two things. One, we're going to leave you something to call us if you need us. And secondly, some of us will, will leave our seed in the wombs of your daughters so that they produce great leaders who will, who will not look like your other villagers because they will be great in stature, right? And, and then in Danny's experiences, she's in Mexico, and obviously, I would say a, a, a fair time later, and the leadership of Palenque are these tall of stature, giant-sized hybrids, right? So when you have that kind of orchestration, you know, behind it, it's like, you know, what's the chance we connect with somebody who has that information of saying, well, look, here's the first part of your story where these beings are being created. And like, so what you've experienced seeing these really tall hybrids is part of a continuum, you know, that there's information already out there saying, yeah, you know, they came from beyond the time barrier and created these hybrids. So when things like that happen, you, it's hard not to see that there's an intelligence orchestrating that we receive that information and, and not in advance where it would have influenced us, but as a confirmation, yeah. you know. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff like that where we can look now and say, well, yeah, that makes some sense, you know, whereas before it would not. And the same with the alien subject. I mean, I'd had an experience back in 2001 uh, on a shamanic journey. I was actually with um, Hawaiian baby woodrose seeds, if anyone's ever tried those. but. Um, and on that journey, one of the things I experienced was I was in this body of this tall being who was piloting a craft towards Earth, and I was aware that there'd been the destruction of something behind me, which had killed most of my comrades, 
uh, and I was like fleeing pursuit towards Earth. Now that was a totally out of context experience. I had nothing to put that into, and so for for many many years, I've really never thought about it again. You know, it's just a strange thing that happened during a shamanic journey. You know, so um, and then of course when we encountered this material um, from the book Alcharinga, when the first ancestors are created, which is part of what we research in the new book. Um, in that, it describes you know this large ship destroyed in space and a few small craft coming down, you know, escaping from it, coming down, and, you know, tall beings in these blue uniforms, which, you know, in the experience, I was in this blue uniform. And so suddenly it's like, you know, yes, like, you know, you put that into the context. And again, you have these little fragments, they're all out of context in time. Mm -hmm. But then at some point, you're able to look back and say, hang on, you know, there's a field of fragments here that kind of interrelate. And that's kind of been our process of putting all these different things together. Um, and obviously the book, tack the new book tackles a lot of that, but not all of it. Yeah. But that's certainly how the process has been for us. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. Sorry, did you say 700, you said, would you say 780 or 700 BC that you figured you were traveling to? Oh, uh, yeah, 600 as well. It was 7th uh, century. Yeah, so, so the 7th Seven, century. This, so that'd be AD yeah. then, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just trying to think of what was happening around then. Like that's like cutting well, that's out hearts and throwing people down now. the fucking steps and stuff. Well, they weren't doing it there then, no. But <laughs> that's the time of Lord Hanad Pakal, who is the guy that is made famous by Eric von Daniken's books because of the oh. the lid. Yeah. So at that time, Pakal is the Lord of Palenque, and that's who Danny is working for in those experiences. And he's sending her off to do things for her, and he is an alien hybrid. So it's kind of funny that, you know, obviously there's been a long-going argument, you know, was Pakal um, in some way connected with aliens, which is, you know, this argument with Eric von Daniken. <laughs> you know, from our perspective, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> but this, he's a, you know, he's a seven-foot-plus tall hybrid in control of the city, and that all of the lords of Palenque are also these tall hybrids. Yeah. And if you look on the walls of the temple, say the, the Temple of the Foliated Cross at Palenque is a good example, you'll see that there are frescoes showing the lords of Palenque talking to their advisors, who are these normal Mayans. And the Mayans are standing on boxes, right? And they're still a head and shoulders shorter than the lords. <laughs> so... This isn't just pulling it out of nowhere. You know, yeah. they've drawn their lords to be that much taller. They are like in the seven foot plus range. Yeah. 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 Wow. Is that, now I'm trying to wonder, because when we had Eric Von Daniken on, he was talking about, and it was, is Planke, is that where there was the underground tunnels that were never be able to be found again? They, they found some recently, yeah. And in, yeah. in our book, we wrote about those experiences, which is out of print now. Danny, you know, explains that there's tunnels there and that there's water flowing yeah. through them. So, yeah, that's right. I remember the entrance was under the river or something crazy like that. Yeah, Von Daniken talked about all this when he came on. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah, because in 2014, they did remote sensing and they, they picked up, there's nine, at least there's nine tunnels radiating out from the front of the Temple of Inscriptions. Um, there's obviously more tunnels. There's a tunnel network. But yeah. at the time when we wrote that in the first book we did, um, which was in 2012, you know, obviously long before that, we described that and said, yeah, there's water flowing through the tunnels. So th these are things that people can like, you know, objectively check, you know, that we've had that dated in print claims, you know, um, and that's because of things that Danny saw underneath the city. And like from our perspective, yeah, there's a, a huge tunnel network there, which so they may have found a few tunnels so far, but we would expect in the not far future for them to find a, a considerably larger tunnel complex. Mm -hmm. Wow. So how did how did that play into the rest, putting all the other pieces of the puzzle together then for this book? Because there's quite a few 
few interesting. Did you get to cards. read any of the tablets in your? I she shows a lot of, lot of stuff. I would, I mean, I would be writing and trying to copy stuff with my finger. I'd be like, can you imagine lying on the bed right against a wall and going like that with my yeah. finger? I would see her just like <laughs> right on the wall. But I didn't know it's like, like, you know, I don't know what she was doing. Trying to copy so. stuff from that side to here. I should have put some ink on her finger or something. You know? <laughs> yeah. you know, a lot of information. And the thing is, there's two elements to this. When I was going back to that moment, um, first of all, the time was different because if I was gone here for a few hours over there, it could be up to months. That was the first thing. Time went very quickly. Um, and I sped through a lot um, in a, in that year. It felt like I'd gone through probably 15 years or more. Um, and the other thing is that when I was working with Hannah Pakal, he was asking me for help. Um, he was trying to organise things. He knew that there was this ongoing hostility between different groups in the city. And the other element, so that element was for me to help him. The other part of it was when I would go underground, there were labs. They, um, some of the beings that were underground, they were harvesting human skin. Um, people would go missing in the city. Babies would go missing. They'd be extracting um, DNA. They would be doing this. They would be cloning. They would be trying to look more human in an artificial way. When I went um, sort of down that route with things, if I had um, those encounters, they were the more aggressive, they were the more violent ones. They were the ones where I was really getting my ass kicked, <laughs> mind the French. Um, so there were the two elements of it, the dangerous element and the more helpful element. And it was, yeah, and it was literally like reliving a whole life right there. It almost wow. sounds like a crazy it's drawn nuts. out past it's life nuts. regression that you're doing on yourself. Yeah, yeah, like auto regression. The thing is, the thing is, and I, it only just clicked to me yesterday. I was talking to Bruce yesterday um, <laughs> that the first ever um, contact that I had when this whole thing began in 2012. Um, how do I describe this? The first meeting was actually in a dome. Um, before they took me to Palenque, it was in a dome with a whole bunch of hybrids. I could just call it a whole bunch of hybrids and beings from different other places. The thing is that the link to the place um, where this meeting took place and the actual, and it literally just clicked to me like hours ago, um, to back to the book of Alcharinga about the actual mothership, the craft that um, is used to bring these 50,000 beings to earth on the mission is made out of crystal. So it's like a transparent material. Um, the dome where I was in the beginning, in the very first um, sort of like abduction or, or past life um, time slip, it was, it was like we were in a dome that was made out of glass, but like we could see right through the floor, see right through the walls, but it was a dome and it was like being in a nothing but in a something. And I said to Bruce yesterday, you want to make a bet it was the same material? Mm -hmm. that was used for that craft that came to towards Australia. So it was like, wow, I was just putting another piece of the puzzle together and it only just happened to me yesterday. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, because as well, um, I've read as in a few accounts that people taking DM, smoked DMT, that they often start in a dome, that they find themselves in a dome. Huh. Right? And, and when you think about that, you think, so hang on a minute, so... If these crafts are, you know, like typical domed saucers, but they're made of crystal, so you don't really feel like you're in a fully enclosed, you know, walled space, but you realize you're in a dome. 
And that, that starts to make sense. You think if you're being somehow beamed into this other dimension where they have, you know, they're using these domed crystalline craft, you, you know you're in a structure, but you don't really see the walls, right? So it's a funny thing that then, she, like she said, she's clipped that. And then when you think about for a lot of these people with DMT experience, they say yeah, they start off with the chrysanthemum and then a dome, and there's certain, you know, things that happen that are quite common. And I think, well, uh, yeah, many of these happening where they are appearing on a ship, but you just realize you're in a dome, but you don't see walls. So you don't, you know what I mean? So you start putting this together and you think, yeah, hang on a minute. And because a lot of the um, ayahuasca experiences, the shamans see saucer craft. They see these Pleiadian beings. They see the greys. They see reptilians. Yeah. You know, so these things are obviously um, are not just what we think as mundane physical phenomena. They, they transcend that. And they also occur in the shamanic states and in, you know, the these um, psychedelic states and stuff. So the, the phenomena are not limited in the way that we think of, oh, you know, it's a metal craft and it's in our world, in our realm. Like, no, because, I mean, you can equally see all this phenomena if you take ayahuasca and find yourself, you know, on the crafts with the greys. So, so it is a complex area. And I know that some people would like to, to, to have it simplified and say, well, look, you know, all this weird, you know, interdimensional or time travel, you know, that can't be true. You know, it's just metal craft like we have flying right. here from another planet. It's like, no. if you want to look at that, you'll never get to the end. You'll never get to the bottom of the story like that because that is not how it's working in yeah. reality, you know. Yeah. Um, and that is a problem because, as you know, there's a lot of people in this subject that are still fairly materialist in their thinking uh, and they really want it just to be that the government of, I've got a metal craft in a hangar and that, you know, that they were all out of this technology and that that's the whole story, but it clearly isn't the whole story. And that some of the, the things that are happening are, are higher dimensional and quantum phenomena, you know, that, I mean, the common, the most common, you know, I guess, fantastical UFO that is seen is these spheres of light, you know, which can appear out of nowhere they seem to be able to move, you know, faster than any vehicle can reasonably move in terms of our understood physics. Uh, and then they can also transform. People see them transform from a sphere of light to a, a triangular craft, you know, or from a triangular craft to a tall being walking along on the ground, back into a ball of light, splitting into multiple objects and then vanishing again. Yeah, so, yeah. like, you can't tell me that that is a metal rocket ship, yeah, right? Yeah. These are phenomena that are popping out of you know higher dimensions. So, mm. uh, as strange as the experiences that you know Danny's had and other people have had, you know, there's a point where you got to say, "Hang on, we should actually expect it to be that strange if we're dealing with beings that have transcended." It's the limits of our physical world. Yeah, good point. Well, not only that, that's the way that a lot of the UFO researchers seem to be turning to the farther they get along. I mean, even Grant Cameron's turned that corner now into more of a... Yeah. You know, I heard him recently. I didn't know about him until recently. But yeah, he does. I actually found him very sensible. I was listening to his talk. Um, I don't know if it was a new one, but I listened to one, and it was very sensible, very much on the lines of that, that you're saying, you know, that we have to stop thinking of it in that way, like you say, the mundane, because... It, you know, it won't. They won't get to the bottom of it that way, and also they won't get to the bottom of it just simply by going, you know, through the research. Because I mean, without dealing with the the people that are at the heart of the phenomena, the contactees, you know, the I say like the the chosen, the cursed, you know, the however you want to see it, you know, these people that are pursued by phenomena are the are the only ones who can really help to fathom it. Because you know, there's no good just going through reports and stuff. I think, you know, these are the people that are directly interfacing with the phenomena, you know, yeah. so for whatever reason it is selecting them, they are the, you know, the contacted by it, whatever it is. Um, and obviously, you know, 
Danny and myself have had a lot of that strangeness, but we're not alone in that, of course. Mm. Um, but it does give you insights that you know you wouldn't get from just pure research. Um, no, no matter how good a researcher you know, I am, I think I'm a fairly good researcher. I've got you know, a level head when I need to have one. But I can also see from having had experiences, there's no way I could reasonably get my head around some of these things if I hadn't been plonked into them. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, even Grant Cameron, his switch over to that more consciousness side of research, I think was an experience that he had in 2012 at, at the UFO Congress, listening to uh, the crop circle guy, Colin... And Colin Anderson? Colin Andrews. Okay. No, Colin Andrews. No, Colin Andrews. Yeah. I mean, so that was his was in 2012 as well, which is interesting. Um, so then so then that whole Crystal Craft thing, did that get confirmed for you as well uh, through a lot of the Palladian mythos and some of the, the books and stuff like that? Or Yeah. Yeah. And basically with the um, with the book that we were introduced to, which is this Outeringa when the first ancestors were created, which is which is a, a fairly short book written by an Australian medium called Valerie Barrow, who we've had the pleasure to meet um, since since reading the book. Uh, we didn't know of her previously, but she, the book's from 2002. Um, it's sort of self-published. I think so, you know, it wasn't widely known. No. Um, and obviously we hadn't been in Australia when it was written, so we, we knew nothing about it. But we found out about it when we were doing the out of the... Sorry, Ancient Aliens in Australia book. 2013. Uh, so 2013, yeah. yeah. So, um, and in that, it describes yeah, this large crystalline craft that comes from the Pleiades. Um, in the book, they, they gave a date not around 900,000 years ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're aware, like, you know, dates in psychic readings are, are notoriously difficult to pin down. But so they said around 900,000 years ago, anyway. Uh, and that this vast craft has 50,000 beings on board. Uh, it's travelled here through what certainly sounds to me like a stargate. It goes through a gateway, which allows it to travel, you know, rapidly to the Earth, um, and that it's yeah, it's, it's grown from a kind of a, almost a living crystalline material, mm-hmm. which is then imbued with a self-aware intelligence, i.e., some sort of you know AI that inhabits the actual frame of the craft. So you talk about a living crystal ship, right? So you know, wacky sounding as that is. The thing is that when you look to see what do our leading, you know, thinkers, leading scientists in the uh, the realms of you know, um, ec- you know exobiology and astrobiology, when they start to ponder what they expect to see from advanced alien civilizations, the extraordinary thing is that one of the things they describe is we expect some of them to have transcended, you know, the physical and biological, and to have uploaded themselves into crystal, into silicon crystal, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So. So as much as it sounds, especially, oh, new age, crystals, oh, here we go. It's like, well, well, no, actually, this is what they expect the next technology leaps to be, is that, you know, uh, large crystalline structures with self-aware AI in them. Hey, they're already programming crystals in NASA and all these space programs are using, using, they're using programmed crystals. Like, they're already doing that. I've met this dude that was... He's an older fellow. We should get him on the show one day. And well, he was silicon, in charge of like programming some of those crystals. Silicon with, almost seems right. like the, you know, it's like the next logical step. Yeah. 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 You get faster processing through silicon than you can through carbon based. So, so if, if you want to have, you know, have a truly, you know, advanced AI system, then yeah, you know, you're going to be looking into the silicon crystal. Really. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and also that most of the leading experts expect a large percentage of advanced civilizations to be non-biological. And that's something else people have to sort of get their heads around because, you know, there is an expectation that that whatever we meet will be an 
an entity like us, you know, a physical being that lands. But that's actually quite unlikely. I mean, and we, we, have, to, we have to consider that because, you know, some of the things that we see, but which appear to be biological, they may not be as well. So we have to be very cautious about this idea that they will be just like us because many of these civilizations will likely have already gone post-biological and in some way either be using androids or, or manifesting themselves directly out of, the matter around us, you know, modifying quantum reality, doing all sorts of strange things that would be almost magical. Um, and so we, have, we do have to be a little cautious because a lot of these are subjects that people have versus what the, the leading thinkers in the world have, you know, are, are very far apart. Um, you know, because we have the sort of the land on the White House lawn is our kind of, you know, programmed into people. I feel, to be honest, I think many people, most people are still kind of holding out for that, you know, that, that yeah, the craft will land, there'll be, you know, a guy comes out, probably a blonde, Aryan-looking guy, from what a lot of the lore seems to be in mythology. Uh, they will come out, shake hands with the president, you know, and it will all go like that. But that's that's incredibly unlikely, I, I think impossible um, for a start. But anyway, also, it's far more likely that, you know, you'd be a probe or, or a phenomena that can just simply appear in front of you. You know, technologies that are so far ahead, millions of, you know, a million years ahead, perhaps, where it's almost unfathomable what they can do. And then when you when you consider that, and then you look at the things that are happening to people, I would say that the contact has been underway for thousands of years, and that the phenomena people are reporting are the contact, that we're dealing with, you know, an alien intelligence, and the way that it makes contact is not the way that the average person thinks it would. And even if we look at the animal kingdom, look at the way that animals communicate, you know, you know, what about, you know, if an alien wants to communicate with us by smell and just suddenly there's a strange smell around the planet. A lot of, a lot of creatures communicate through smell or through pheromones or through color or, or through sound. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We read, and what, let's work. There's, there's strange sounds that are heard around the planet. People have strange phenomena where, you know, lights popping out of nowhere and flying around. People are having these intuitive experiences, visions or being taken or, you know, you name it. There's a whole vast list. Now, that could be a singular contact from one intelligence, or it could be multiple intelligences contacting us in their own different ways, what they think contact should be. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we have to be very careful in assuming that, uh, that these intelligences will, will come down to our level and shake hands with the president. That. that is just not, it's not, not really a tenable or believable thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe after thousands and thousands of years of study, they might decide, you know what, it's clear that's the only way that these idiots will, will get, get it that we're here. Um, but I mean, this is, you know, realist. I think we have to say, look, there's been contact going on for a long time. With, like, with Danny being, you know, involved with shamanism and, you know, she's a certified shaman in Peru, actually. I mean, if you need ayahuasca in Peru, she's technically conservative. Uh, but anyway, because of that, the shamans and the people that in her kind of, you know, experiences have been in contact with this phenomena for like probably 100,000 years. When you look through the records, you look through the, the art and you you listen to the stories and, you know, for them, the contact has been ongoing. So when people say, "When's contact going to begin?" You know, Sorry, okay, go, yeah, go and ask, go and ask one of these shamans out in the uh, in Sorry, Siberia or in the, in the Amazon. Say, when are the aliens going to make contact? They'll probably laugh at you yeah. because they, yeah, they've had that. That's been going on for generations and generations and generations. You know, they're meeting greys, they're meeting, you know, they're meeting all sorts of beings. You know, um, as you say, seeing sources, seeing all these things um, in. In the in Mexico, the Mayan sites, people, you know, some of the villages and stuff, they're still seeing beings landing at these Mayan sites, reporting, seeing, you know, lights come down, turning into beings, the beings are wandering around in the temples. And, you know, um, I would advise people who are interested in that actually to look at the work of um, RD6 Killer Clark mm-hmm. and her books. 
because she gives a lot of accounts of those, uh, 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 and not just with the Mayans, but with other indigenous people of the Americas. Mm -hmm. And throughout the indigenous people of the Americas, contact with these beings, these star people, is commonly happening. Yeah, you know, in, all, in all the indigenous cultures, it seems. It's the only... Yeah, it's only... Yes, it's, it's not just when will contact happen. When will it happen for that small percentage of the planet yeah. that is not already acknowledging contact? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel like it really is changing, though, and it's breaking up a little bit. It's It's... I don't know. It's opening up. There's groups of people all over, even in this culture, that are out making contact on their own. And I don't know. I think mm -hmm. we're really making some headway there. So what about, yeah. Daniela, what about some other things that led you to the the, the time frame of this whole thing, then? The 800,000 years. So that was, yeah, we, you know, putting um sort of Valerie's book and, and researching, you know, what happened around the 780,000 year Mark, you know, well, with yeah. the book that um, Bruce had written, we started finding evidence right. of things that were going on around the same time that were just things that we couldn't sort of like turn a blind eye to because it kept pinpointing the same time um, where we had genetic um, changes, we had climatic changes, we had physical changes of the planet. Um, and then, you know, with Valerie's book and just tying things together, we realised that we were onto something and, you know, if it hadn't have been for all of that evidence, we wouldn't have written the book. I mean, there was no book to write, really, um, unless I was deciding to write about that particular experience yeah. in Mexico and just, yeah. like, no, make it a shamanic yeah. book, you yeah. know. It was very different because the scientific evidence just kept popping up. It kept popping up. So it was something that was like, Bruce, you know, we've got to pay attention to this, and this is a time frame that 780,000 to 800,000 years ago it was hard to sort of like put it out of our mind and not explore that further. Mm -hmm. And that's where Bruce came into it and started pulling the evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we couldn't have written it, you know, even a couple of years ago. I mean, some of these studies and stuff just didn't exist, right? So, I mean, keep in mind, you know, that, okay, Valerie's, Valerie's book, which obviously was the core initial source, you know, for their stuff to do with the craft, because, you know, otherwise you can't just pull that out of nowhere. I mean, obviously, so we had that, you know, a claim to investigate. You yeah. know, someone is saying that, you know, and for people that aren't aware of this, the book that she's written has the accounts of about, I think it's about 30 different people's past life memories, right, that, that she had access to. Now, she hasn't put everything into that book. Obviously, she's taken highlights of things that she was told by these different people that she met. There seemed to be a, what you call a group reincarnation, where a whole group of people that were connected in a past life have reincarnated into the same place at the same time. Now, I only know of one other like this, which is um, there's a case in the UK back in the 1980s, I think. It was, there was a group reincarnation of people. that it, There was a, a psychiatrist who was seeing a patient. She remembered basically being in the, um, the sort of the, the, what was it called, the, the Gnostics in France, the Kaffirs, and the destruction of the Kaffirs. He started to realize that what she was describing was this event. And then after that, he started getting a flow of patients that were also remembering Right, and it was coming up for them, and he was a you know a leading sort of a Oxford or Cambridge trained psychiatrist, you know. And then he realised that he'd also had dreams and strange experiences. And when he put it together, he realised that all of them were having this link. And so he went away and researched, and he went he had to go all the way to get you know the Vatican records of people killed, you know, by the um, Inquisition, right, to track this down in the sort of the French archives. So this is not something like, you know he could have stumbled on in Google or. You know, no, I mean, he had literally had to go to, like, you know, academic historians and ask them to check the records. Right? And he found the names of these people in the records, right, of the people they've been killed. Just, and they're just minor people. They're not, like, nobles or anything. 
Um, they, so they had this whole group reincarnation. So these things can and do happen. And um, so basically, yes, Valerie found her some situation where suddenly you know, around her, people were coming to her because she was a medium. You'd have people coming to her either for a treatment or therapy, and they would start talking about this event. Uh, also, certain she had people even in a car park. Someone come up to her saying, I've got to tell you something. You know, so it was that weird. She ended up with about 30 different people telling her they remembered aspects of this life. You know, some of them were on this ship that came here. Some of them were on the opposite in this opposite group, which was responsible for the destruction of the ship. And some even remembered being born as the first human hybrid. So when you put it together, there was quite a complete story that she was able to write um, describing this event. Plus, an artifact had come, before this even began, an artifact had come to her uh, because of the name of her house, which was called Alcharinga. And this artifact was brought by a woman who, who said, you know, your house makes me think you should look after it while I'm sick, you know, because it's a, a Charinga stone which is connected to the Al-Turinga times, which is the dream times, the time of the first creation of humans, right, uh, in which the Turinga, these Al-Turinga beings walk the earth. Um, and the thing is, the Turinga stones, when you look into the, and we talk about this in the book, but when you look into the, the understanding of what these are, the Aboriginal groups who have them, possess them, say, look, these are the original ones of these, uh, ancient devices, you know, stone objects that from the Al-Turinga time that were brought to earth and that hold the consciousness of these star beings, these Alturinga beings, right? And so one of these comes to her house. And then shortly afterwards, a voice starts talking to her, saying it's connected to the stone, and he's a being called Alturinga, right? So you have a continuity with Aboriginal law and with the understanding. So it's not completely out of context, right? And it actually matches what, say, an Aboriginal would say, like, what is the Turinga stone? Well, it's an object that's connected to an Alturinga being, right? <laughs> it's got its consciousness in it. And so this thing has got this content and he starts talking to her. And he says, you know, we need you to remember this, this whole lost part of human history. When we came here, uh, you're going to meet all these people and they're going to remember things. Uh, and you know, you're going to get this whole history put back together. And that is essentially what unfolded for her. Mm. Right. So we had that as a source, but it's a very strange source. So the way we looked at it is, was if we couldn't validate some of the major events in it, then okay, you just have to leave it as a story, you know, an interesting story. Mm -hmm. um, and so we selected the, you know, the biggest ones, you know, that we selected in there. Obviously, was the ship, you know, the destruction of the ship and this vast, you know, kilometer-wide crystalline craft. You know, obviously, anything that would help validate that would be crucial. Um, the the other point that we wanted to really was the genetics. And obviously, I had you know a lot of information on that from the previous book, so I already, I already knew there were anomalies in the genome. Um, and then the, the other one asteroidal was, impacts, the asteroidal impacts. That's right. Cause you know, it says in there five years later, you know, that there is a revenge mission, but these other beings, these Leonine beings, and like Leonine beings are uh, some of the earliest engravings on the planet. Some of the earliest statuettes on the planet are Leonine humanoid beings. Right. Anyway. Um, so for people who think, well, Leonine being, you know, have a look, you'll find some of the oldest yeah. representations in the world of Leonine beings, um, that these beings arrived and that then they, they basically bombard the planet. They threaten the remaining enemy group to leave. Otherwise, they will bombard the planet. And what they do, they use meteorites that they tow behind their crafts with these energy weapons, and they just fling them down at planets. And they say, look, we can, we can crack a planet open. That's how big these objects can be. But obviously, that wasn't their intention, is to bombard beings that are in underground bases. That's what's claimed. Um, and then we found that, yeah, that in 2016, so again, this couldn't have been known in 2002 when the book was published. This is sort of key to understand. 
um, that in 2016, the geologists found evidence that there was a, a planetary bombardment by large meteors that hit like Africa, Central America, Australia, Tasmania, parts of Asia, right? Parts you know, of Europe too, I think. Parts of Europe too, I think, right? Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, of course, really, I mean, normally, you know, you might every so, so many thousand years, you get an object hits the planet. It's quite anomalous to get multiple objects hitting the planet from different sides at the same time. Yeah. And seemingly, they're not even from one body breaking up, but slightly different compositions, right? So, so that's really bizarre. And the fact that it says in, you know, it's in that claim five years later. So you think, well, look, all these events have to come together. You know, if they were all at different times, Again, no matter how strange that was, we'd have had to say, well, you know, that can't be it, you know, because this is all claims to be happening at the same time. And so what we found, though, is that, you know, yeah, that the divergence of the, the first large-brained hominin, so the Neanderthals, Denisovans, and our own line, that divergence is underway around 780,000 years ago, yeah. right? The last common ancestors 800,000 years ago, approximately, are all of these large-brained hominins, right? And they start to diverge around 780,000 years ago. And then you've got the, the, the bombardment of the planet is dated to around 780,000 years ago, right? And then we managed to pin down, you know, like I say, frag, we'll get to that bit in more detail, but fragments of this craft and dated to this material being dated to 780,000 years ago. So if it wasn't for that hand-in-glove fit, you know, then we'd have to say, well, you know, no matter how compelling it is, um, we can't really convincingly argue it because it's such a, a strange story. But with them all fitting like that, that in itself was freaking anomalous. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Like, well, it's pretty weird. Even yeah. without any source, if you just stumbled on those facts, you'd be like, well, this is weird. And then, you know, and then we found that, yeah, that at the same time, there'd been a magnet, the last magnetic pole shift of the planet happened 780,000 years ago. And then it was like, oh, and then on top of that, that the climate <laughs> cycle of the planet changed around 800,000 years ago. And it's, it's like, almost well, exactly it's like 30. On a Almost yeah. exactly 30 great years, too. Yeah, and it's, you know, there's a really strange... Th and then also something odd, odds happened there with the magnetic field because, you know, the cycle of magnetic reversals just disrupts. So whatever else was going on then, you know, supposedly before that, there was a quite a regular cycle. We're now hundreds of thousands of years overdue, a magnetic reversal. So something quite anomalous must have happened, which also knocked out that cycle as well as these other climate cycles. And... So it really does show you that there's like there's a, a multi-tiered pile of anomalies. Yeah, yeah. stacked 780,000 years ago. Huh. One of my favorite. When parts was the sorry? Go ahead. No, you go ahead. When was the destruction of Tiamat supposed to be, according to Stitchin? Uh, I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, um, I don't delve too deeply into his work. I have his books, but I've not read them all, to be honest. I mean, I, I, I look online at some of his stuff, but I couldn't tell you when that was meant to be. I can't really remember either because, but as, as the story goes, I remember I thought that planet was destroyed by some sort of crazy weapons like that. So, you know, if, if that lined up, it would almost seem like a back and forth and fucking Earth won. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, certainly there was some pretty weird stuff. I mean, that would be another level of weirdness a destroyed planet at the same time. But there's so many anomalies already, you know, stacked on that. Um, that, yeah, I think we're sort of we're quite comfortable with the amount of anomalies that have already stacked <laughs> up. To yeah. the, the thing is, though, in some ways, it's um, perhaps so big and so profound that I, I think maybe people struggle to accept that we could have found this. You know, 
Um, and so we do, we are struggling a bit to get people to actually notice that we've even found all this evidence. So, um, I don't know. I, I still think a lot of people are waiting for that landing on the White House lawn. They don't recognize that, hang on a minute, you know, this is a form of disclosure. Look, we're able to show that there was an extraterrestrial presence on this planet. There's modification of the human genome that is anomalous. Yep. There's remnants of, the, of a material which is unique and anomalous uh, and dates to the same time. Um, and, that, you know, there's, there's this ongoing contact which is going on around the world. You can ask, you know, ask all the indigenous people. Uh, and, and many now of the non you know, the sort of the, I guess, the westernized, technologically materialist type people, that many of them too now see that. And that these beings, you know, are part of a, this is a continuum. We talk about this in the book, the contact continuum. But there is no contact coming. Right? Contact has been going on since that first event, right? That there, there has not been somehow a loss of contact. That they, they've kept monitoring or involving or nudging along or psychically, you know, tapping into people, yeah. uh, no doubt, for probably most of that period. But however you look at it, that event is contact. Once they made contact 780,000 years ago, contact has happened, right? So, you know, you've had an alien come here, and it's done stuff. So that's contact, right? So after that, you're in a continuum. Uh, and in that continuum, what we see is that at some point, they have also revealed to us aspects of their identity and where they're from because no matter where you go on this planet pretty much you'll be able to find stories about the pleiades yeah, right? yeah. Um, almost, anywhere, almost anywhere i mean you can go to indonesia you ask them where you know where are the ancestors from oh yeah from the pleiades ask the aboriginal people who are like you know where's the most important place up in the sky above you oh, the pleiades the seven sisters that came here in the dreaming uh if you go and ask you know the native americans all across the americas pretty much We'll have either important stories of the Pleiades, or we'll say directly, our ancestors come from there, or we come from there. Uh, the Maya, they aligned most of their important sites and most important cycles were aligned with the Pleiades. Um, you have crop cycles that align with the Pleiades around the world, from Sumeria to against the Americas. Um, you pretty much can't go anywhere, I think, on this planet, where if you said, look, do you have any Pleiades stories? They aren't going to go, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we've got like some really awesome Pleiades legends, you know. And there's there's obviously a reason for this. I mean, if you look at the Cree Indians, and I like their example. Like I saw one of their teachers was saying, look, when we look up at the sky, we see the center of the sky is the Pleiades. Right? When you look at all these bright stars, the Pleiades is fairly dim. It's an interesting object, but, you know, it's not the first thing you notice when you look up. You kind of have to look for it, right? But yet they say, look, the center of the sky is there on the Pleiades. And that from there, around it, there's the web. You know, there's a great web. And once upon a time, a, a strand of web came down from the Pleiades to the Earth right, and connected us there. And that our ancestors lived there in the Pleiades. Now, that's a pretty weird story. I mean, that's a pretty weird story. And that when you think about that, that sounds like a wormhole to me. And that sounds like it connects to a web of wormholes, right? And that these beings are trying to communicate to us how this is working, right, in terms that we can understand. You know, say, look, yeah, you know, we come down, there's a web, you know, we've come down, we come from over there, you know, and you go to, our, to the Aboriginals and you ask, you know, about these stories and they'll, they'll have tales of how the seven sisters come down. And when they leave, they leave by either like a secret tunnel or a magically growing tree trunk um, or through a serpent rope, right? And all these things, again, it's like, well, what do those sound like? But to me, again, those sound like rudimentary descriptions of wormholes. Right. And so, again, you get these themes that not only the Pleiades, but wormhole travel, uh, creator beings, ancestors living there. Uh, so there's a point where they say, like, this is you know, 
this is extraordinary. Yeah. And then find that there's evidence validates claims from what seems to be a consciousness that says it's from this Pleiadian group, which wants us to know about our creation, and that the major events in its story can be validated by science. I mean, I mean, at some point you got to say, well, isn't this contact? What is this? If it's not contact, what is it? I had a crazy experience with the Pleiades uh, system rising. So we were out looking for UFOs one night, new moon, dark sky, very dark. And uh, we look over, we saw somebody spotted it on the horizon. And it was, uh, it might have, the horizon might have been a bit messed up from the forest fires in the summer. I don't know. Because what happened was it came up, the Pleiades started rising um, way away, like, you know, in the, in the dark, obviously. And I, I, I saw it. Somebody pointed it out, and when I first saw it, I thought, because we were looking for the Pleiades earlier, and we couldn't see it. And when I first saw it, I thought I thought the Pleiades, but then we noticed this green-blue blob of, it looked like a amorphous energy thing, because you know how the Pleiades looks very, you can't even focus on it. It's like twinkling, yeah, and right the, more you, the more you focus on it, the more it slides away from your vision. It's very weird. And in the, on the horizon, things are so much bigger. So it was this great, I, I jumped out of my seat and ran over 20 feet. And I was like looking at it, trying to figure out what it was. And there was this flash bulb in also in, in, in sight. But when it came up after a couple minutes of trying to figure out what this thing was, cause I really did think it was something anomalous. And then I did realize it was the Pleiades rising. I mean, I really thought like how many cultures around the world would have seen this astronomical event and and part maybe that's part of the myth but when i started to try and research like the pleiades rising it just didn't seem like a a very uh profound thing or a pronounced thing but um it sure was it sure was interesting to see that um that live and how crazy it really looked like like we were all we were all blown away and then we realized it's just the uh just rising up but the pleiades rising though is you know is important to many cultures i mean it's it does signify the starts of certain festivals and this, and certain celebrations and stuff. You know, if you look at like, I know the Hopi, the, the Pleiades rising. I think it's one of the solstices that, that it aligns to you know to the, the Kivas, the underground houses. That, that then they see the Pleiades comes through yeah, through yeah. the hole. It shows that then is the start of the, the you know the ritual times and all this stuff. So I mean, Pleiades rising obviously is seen as a, a kind of a special event. Maybe maybe for some of those, maybe it does cause. You know, you say an optical kind of phenomena that is compelling for them as well. Yeah, so I know that yeah. there are certainly yeah, Pleiades rising related celebrations. Huh. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just the, the sheer amount of Pleiades related stuff is is incredible. Considering as well, really, I think when you look at the most striking system, I think it's Orion. I yeah, mean, Orion always seems to be there. Yeah. Yeah, and I know that that is considered to be important. But when you really look up, you look around. What stands out? I mean, Orion because of the way it is with those you know, the three stars and then with the four stars around them, you know, like an X or, you know, obviously it's been drawn as crosses and H's. And, you know, to me, you would think if you're going to choose anything in the sky where all the cultures would say, well, that looks really, you know, stunning, it would, you'd think it'd be Orion. But yeah, Orion is secondary, you know, yeah. that yes, it is noted by many cultures. But again, the, most of them do not say our ancestors came from Orion mm-hmm. or, or have a big celebration of Orion. There's this huge focus on the Pleiades. Yeah. Which is which is anomalous, yeah. Um, because there are brighter stars, you know. Obviously, there's quite a few brighter star systems up there. So, and constellations that look, you know, quite interesting, you know, shape-wise. Yeah. Um, so it is quite, it's yeah, it's abnormal that it's so much focus globally, um, and that's one of the things I mean that makes it an interesting target for these this sort of investigation. Anyway, even if we didn't have this other 
that you know obviously like i said my my contact my friend leonard farah who's he's researched all of this Pleiades mythology in different cultures you know and he's shown it is a global phenomena right from the stone age you know um that there's this huge focus and that there's all these legends of beings connected with it and beings that have visited us and uh, that he shows that the, the sumerians that you know when people talk about the anunnaki you know they have this the sitchin version but if you look at like leonard farah's work he shows very convincingly they're talking about links to the pleiades they don't talk about the planet x nibiru right they they always are linking these beings with the sev with the number seven and with the seven sisters they're you know the yeah, you know, there's even the seven wise, the seven wise men, these wisdom carriers, and all this. Seven is repeatedly in the mythology, right? Uh, so this idea there's a planet X. I mean, that's that's a, you know a mistranslation or invention or whatever. There's it, when you really look closer at that law, they are talking about you know if you just choose any star system, I think they're choosing they're talking about Pleiades. Hmm. Uh, the, the amount of times the reference of seven comes up in the in the traditions of the Middle East. Uh, you know, amongst the Hebrews, the Sumerians, you know, even the Egyptians. And again and again, you'll find these references to the seven and to this number seven in rituals, in ceremonies. And, and so he, he's really gone into depth on that. I, mean, I won't try to go too far into that. But yeah, he, for anyone who's interested, have a look at that. It's very, yeah, it put, very compelling. Yeah, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So one of, one of the favorite parts of the book for me was um, when you guys linked the, the, let's just say the ship or the, the, the stuff falling to earth and the evidence mm-hmm. that there actually is stuff that like the crystal yeah. droplets and, and uh, Moldavite yeah. and the tectites. I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, Moldavite is, is got this reputation as this real spiritual sort of crystal. And I mean, I had a crazy yeah. synchronicity with a guy in Moldavite and this new age shop in Sedona and the UFO conference. I mean, it was my, it was mind blowing at the time and I've had Moldavite a couple times and it, it breaks on me, which is really weird. That it oh, actually yeah. that it actually breaks because it doesn't seem like such a delicate um, <laughs> delicate stone, no, but no. but I mean that's pretty fascinating to me. That was pretty mind blowing that 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 corresponds as well to some of that. Yeah, yeah, and the Moldavite obviously is you know it's actually technically rarer than diamonds, but because of the way you know the world works, diamonds have an artificially inflated value. But um, well, Moldavite it's pretty expensive, expensive too, as far as crystals go. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it's definitely it's got a lot more legends to it. It's considered a spiritual stone, you know. It's people seem to have strong experiences when they hold it. Yeah. Um, there's also I've seen quite a few people linking it to the Pleiades again. If you Google like Moldavite Pleiades, you'll find a lot of people seem to say it's oh, connected wow. in some way to the Pleiades, um, which obviously the author of um, Al Turinga, you know, Valerie Bay, she talks about that that in her view she felt that it was part of the ship. Um, I couldn't validate that because, you know, like I said, I, I stuck to the thing that I had to be able to sort of scientifically validate for Danny, you know, anything that, you know, we were going to argue. Um, Moldavite is considered to be far older, like, you know, millions of years old. So, Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that was a, that was a, a bit of an issue. Yeah. So that's why I say in the book, I say, look, you know, I'll leave that up to you to decide. You know, it's possible that, like Valerie says, maybe it's because the ship is an alien ship that it's essentially time traveled through a wormhole. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's why it gives an anomalous dating on the model, right? Yeah. That's, that's, I can't say no or yes to that. Yeah. I'm not qualified to say but, yeah. but what, what we did is we put that in there for people to decide themselves. And then I thought, well, then we will look to see, is there any material that can be you know, objectively tied to this event, which is dated to the, the period we'd expect it to be dated to. Um, and that's why we went on a bit more of a search in the geological records. 
and came, you know, and came to discover that yes, there was that there was this other tech type that had, you know, rained down across mostly across Australia, but yeah. there are small parts you know, elsewhere. The ten percent of the planet has got at least some degree of this material, right? So huge dispersal. They think that the object that caused it was about a kilometer across, which is the size we expect for the craft, right? Again, so another match. Uh, in the claims, in the, um, the original account, the, the survivors came down in Australia, right? And this material fell across Australia. Again, so these are hand-in-glove fits. It should fit if they're true, you know, and they do. Um, and the thing that really was compelling was that a, that the material is um, unique in the, yeah. in the geological history of the planet, you know, so we're not cherry picking, you know, from yeah. one tectite to another or whatever. It's, it's a unique form of tectite, um, you know, once in 4.5 billion years. So that's pretty anomalous. Um, and then on top of that, obviously, it's in the right place. It's in Australia. Uh, then it's dated to 780,000 years ago, <laughs> most generally. Yeah, seven hundred seventy-seven to seven hundred ninety thousand. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, that is considered an anomaly. That for a hundred years, um, scientists have been studying this material and have still not come to a unified conclusion of how it could have possibly formed. I mean, you couldn't wish for more when you've yeah, done you I find some <laughs> trace of this stuff? And you just like that, bang, 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 bang. Not only know? that, but it's um, appearance, isn't it? I mean, isn't the appearance the yeah. kicker in the end? Unique yeah. appearance, yeah. Because when they when you look at most tech types, they have uh, there's about four or five forms. You know, there's a dumbbell shape. There's a kind of uh, like um, a core, which is a bit like a UFO shape. There's, uh, there's yeah, like a peanut shape. And then there's obviously these little splash drop shapes. Because you know, you got what happens is you know, an asteroid hits, melts the rock, melts you know the asteroid. Material is thrown outwards. It cools as it goes through the air. But essentially, you've got a, a li almost liquefied rock, which then cools and becomes a, a glass tectite. Yeah. So it's like usually usually a fair amount of silicon, but it doesn't crystallize because it doesn't have time. So you just get a um, you know these glass dark, dark finish. Um, and then typically, they obviously they have the chemical compounds of both of the source object and the local ground material. You also get um, partial melting. You get like singular melting where there's complete melting of some material, right? And then, of course, you get partial melting, where some of the rock is hit, doesn't turn to glass, but it's just melted, you know, partially melted. All the things you'd kind of expect when an asteroid hits, right? And the material is thrown a certain distance, depending on you know, the impact. Um, and this is quite well understood. Um, and there's five or well, four major peptide strewn fields, because for some reason, this doesn't always happen. But they know that there's one up in, there's one up in North America, um, I forgot the name, but there's a, a big crater up there which has produced one of these impact tectite sites. Um, there's another one in Africa and also, uh, oh, the Moldavite one, which again, and of course, this one we're looking at in Australia, right? And the reason why this one's still, I get it, because they're all anomalous in that, when you think about that, in all the times, all these impacts that have hit the planet, we only have like four major strewn fields, right? Yeah, yeah. So I also feel that they're all anomalous. Um, but the, and the Moldavite particularly so is a unique compound. So it may well be that it is from some sort of alien event. You know, I, I'm quite open-minded about that. Um, it may be a separate one, or it may be part of the same story. May, you know what I mean? I'm not going to say, I don't know. Yeah. But it may well be the Moldavite is part of that story. Um, anyway, in this case, there's a different form to the material, right? There's what they call buttons. And these buttons are unique to the Australian stream field. 
And the reason for that is because they say, look, these, these can only be formed by the source material being liquefied, then forming spheres, and then having secondary melting, which has shaped them into these buttons. Right? And the only place that I know of where a liquid immediately forms spheres is space. Right? The only place I can think of where a, a, you know, a roiling hot liquid glass can instantly freeze to a, you know, is in space again. Right. So they, they know. I mean, the NASA scientists that looked at it said, look, our conclusion is, you know, these spheres formed in the vacuum of space. Right? So I, I don't need to speculate. It's like NASA scientists, you know, saying this. Um, and that then these have fallen through the atmosphere quite very fast, in fact. Like, from what I understand, propelled faster than you'd expect, right? Like in an explosion. Yeah. So they've they've come down really fast. Um, and then on the way down, they have melted partially forming these button shapes uh, and they're then just you know impacted the ground and obviously usually they've broken apart but some of them have remained in one piece and they're, they're incredibly expensive managed to get one thousands of dollars to buy uh-huh. um anyway so they have these and they're well studied right and so they conclude this and so the, the argument is being well how does that happen because if an asteroid hits the planet like it should just throw out material locally. You should get the partial melting, you know, the, the full melting, but all of it only is a singular event. Like, how do we explain that material would go like 50 miles back up into space, you know, and, and then still somehow be liquid when it got there, right? And to form a sphere without having cooled down or, you know, and then it turns around and comes back down. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, and so they're like, you know, this is why it's been a head scratcher. I mean, like, again, this is not just me saying it. These are like leading academics who've been fighting like for decades, and geologists. They're saying, and also, how does it look like it's so young? Because some of it looks like it hasn't weathered at all. No. And that's an For a long time, they thought these were really young objects, so, you know, a few, a few centuries or a few thousand years old. But again, if you think about this, if this is a source object, is a colossal, and again, sorry, they're 80% silica or from quartz crystal that's been melted, right? Um, important point. And also they have an unusual composition in terms of that they're definitely not from a standard asteroid, which is agreed by the, the chemists. Right? Um, and that when they, so if you have a source object, which is this kilometer-sized right, craft, they say it's a kilometer-sized object caused it, um, that it exploded in space, as is described in the, these past life memory accounts. Uh, and then it actually says in the accounts that, you know, it broke apart, melted and fell to Earth. You know, so... <laughs> Again, very specific, hand in glove. Same yeah. time frame. Uh, yeah, same time same frame. Time. And then, so they actually says in there, you know, you've got that. Um, that then you start to think, well, hang on a minute, right? If this did explode in space and bits rained down, perhaps some of the debris did not rain down, right? And it's still up there. And so every now and again, you've had additional falls. Or over centuries or millennia, there were further falls. But they date to the same time when that ship exploded. So even if they fall centuries later, they still appear to be 780,000 years old, although you look at them and they look like they fell yesterday, right? So again, that would make some sense if they're not from an impact. They're from something that's exploded up there and it's still got bits flowing around and they're still coming over time. They've gradually rained down. And that also explains why it covers over 10% of the planet's surface. Because, you know, if they're going around in a decaying orbit, and they're just falling over the same area, you know. You start thinking, well, hang on a minute, yeah, that really does actually make a lot of sense. Is there any spiritual um, significance to the to the buttons at all? Like, the, is there people that is there people that collect them or have the? Is there any any, any energy vibes off them or anything like Absolutely. that? Absolutely, Aboriginal people say that they are they are 
objects that can be used for killing or harming, and they're used in, so in sacred use um, for as long as, as known of. I mean, they may well know they're from a ship. You know, as you know, ab the Aboriginal law means that certain things are only revealed to initiated people, right? So, what so is that what is the Ark of the Covenant's full of? Sorry? Is that what the Ark of the Covenant's full of, is these things? I, I can't say, but I can tell you that the Aboriginal people say they're sacred, and that when a shaman becomes a shaman, his insides are replaced with a mixture of crystals and these tectite buttons, right? Oh, wow. They call them, call them eyes. Uh, and basically, so they're that sacred that a shaman is even fooled with them and with crystals to get his shamanic power. So that shows you that the Aboriginal people know these are really special in some way and that they convey power, right? So there is a, a, a sacred tradition of their use. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, that, that exists. Yeah, they are, they are considered power objects. Back wow. to the uh, Pleiades for a minute. Isn't there like sure. a, a huge movement that thinks the entire fucking Giza plateau is built to mimic the Pleiades? No. I, I Orion, wondered if it was. Orion. I would have thought it should be. I mean, it, it should be. I thought I it mean, was the Pleiades. Like, I'm looking at a picture here. Well, the big three, the three pyramids were Orion, shaped as Orion, right? Look at that. Well, Orion, typically in the stories, Orion is always like chasing the Pleiades. Yeah. Huh. Have you got it there? Yeah. I just got a picture that shows the the seven stars of the Pleiades, and, and then three, it's got, three of those are the big, and pyramids? it's like the leg of the bull, yeah, and it's got the, yeah. well, the, well, the great pyramid the and the and the sun temple ends up being the uh, soul one or whatever, I guess. Yeah. Soul, yeah. soul one. Well, absolutely, it should be because you know, again, the Egyptians, you know, they're part of this this um, mystical knowledge of the Pleiades, you know, and that they certainly held the Pleiades in veneration too. And as I say that this, well, I don't think I said, but a number of their sites were aligned with the Pleiades. And again, look, they're part of that same tradition. Um, and as you know, from my conversation with you about my last book, as far as I'm concerned, you know, all wisdom began with the Aboriginal people and the Aboriginal people carried that wisdom out with them. So people say, well, why is it we get the same traditions and all these things everywhere? Because it came out of the same place. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it's been a long time. It's not, it, ain't, it ain't Atlantis that's sunk in the, you know, out in the, um, the Atlantic Ocean. You can keep looking on that, on the floor of the ocean. There's no continent there, right? You know, we've got satellite scanning. There's no continent. If you want to know where all that wisdom's come out of, look at the sunken lands of Sunda and the sunken lands of Sahul the vast missing lands, right? Uh, which we know now from my work shows that the first, you know, migrations down to Eurasia 60,000 years ago were coming out of that region. And again, 12,000 to 13,000 years ago, the Sundanese civilization was going under the water and you had a second pulse of these people carrying these same traditions going out into Eurasia. So you've got a reinforcing of those ancient Aboriginal traditions, right? And wherever you go in the world, I can tell you now, you go to the Andes, you will find symbols that go back to the Aboriginal people. Yeah. If you go to Gobekli Tepe, they're all over the place. Yeah, uh, you, and if you ask us, go, go look at the law of the, the people from Mesopotamia, like, say, the Sumerians. Say, Where did they come from? They say, we come from a lost sunken land to the east, <laughs> over the seas to the east. <laughs> come to the east. Find me a sunken land other than Sunda. Right? Even, uh, isn't, there, isn't that where Lemuria should have been, too? Well, that's when people, yeah, Lemuria is kind of an invention. As far as I'm concerned, it's an invention. You know, it was. How um, dare you? A, a, I know. I, <laughs> sorry. A scientist invented Lemuria to try and explain the connection between lemurs 
in, in Asia and Africa. And, and imagine there had to be a continent connecting them, hence Lemuria from Lemurs. Uh, and then later it was adopted by other occult groups. Um, but, you know, again, there's no basis to Lemuria at all. Um, Atlantis has a basis, but it's not in the Atlantic. Uh, if you look, look at the symbols associated with uh, Atlantis, okay, for people that want to understand this. The, the two most commonly associated symbols are the concentric circles, right? Concentric circles, supposedly even the city itself was concentric circles, right? Concentric circles, well, the oldest use of those in the Aboriginal tradition. Concentric circles mark uh, either a place of like, uh, like a village or a place where you live or watering holes and stuff, right? And then, you know, what's the other symbol? The other symbol is the trident. If you look at the evolution of that symbol, the trident, that's the emu's foot, which is an ancient Aboriginal symbol. These are Sundanese symbols, right, from the Aboriginal traditions. And so where are these Atlanteans from, if not from there, if their core symbols are ancient Aboriginal symbols? Like, these are things people don't, they're not aware because nobody thought that Australia and that region had any ancient traditions of note. They, they were always overlooked. And they, people always expect to find this stuff maybe in the ancient Americas or in ancient Europe. And that the Aboriginal people were just these, you know, I guess essentially subhuman, wandering idiots who had nothing. You know, that was kind of what was seeded into education, you know, and that they had no megaliths, they had no traditions, they had, you know, nothing no to culture. say. Yeah, no culture, nothing to talk about. So that's why the whole community of, you know, ancient mystery research has missed this. And it's and it can, it's running around chasing their tails, right? Looking for this Atlantic. But when you start to look at the Sundanese region and you look at some of the statues there and the way that the arms are folded on the chest, like a Gebekli Tepe in Indonesia and stuff. Easter uh, and Island. The, um, go, to, go to Northern Australia. Look at the, the main culture people should look at, right? And the people of Arnhem Land. And you yeah. look at some of their traditions and you look at like uh, Pillar 43 at Gebekli Tepe with the bird with the circle over its shoulder. That is commonly painted, right? on the walls in Arnhem Land, because that's Emu Lady, who's a Plodean, a Plodean bird tribe lady, right? And that the, the circle nectar is the forbidden fruit, right? And this is a tradition that goes back tens of thousands of years in Arnhem Land. And there she is, painted on Pillar 43. And people are like, oh, what's this? What's this? We can't figure it out. Ask the people in Arnhem Land. <laughs> they'll tell you what these things are. Yeah, and, and not only that, look at the similarities in the carvings of the Moais at Easter Island. I mean, everyone always looks at the heads, but if you carve, if yeah. when you look at the excavated ones, when you get down around the fingers and everything like that, yeah. that looks fucking eerily similar to the carvings in the pillars at Quebec Lake Tepe. Yeah, it's a lost global. That's that's what I picture Atlantis as too. Is just a lost global. You know, whatever the fuck we call it today, I guess we call it the world, you know, that'll be the last thing when they call it something yeah, else. If, if people want to go to the source of that, though, I do say look look to Sunda and Arnhem and Northern Australia, uh, because obviously your Aboriginal culture differs across nations in Australia. But if you look on the North Coast and the remnants in, in you know, Indonesia and Southeast Asia, which obviously has been taken over mostly by Islamic thinking. So a lot of that tradition is lost. But if if you look into that and also look into the pygmy peoples of, of that region of Southeast Asia, who still talk about a rainbow serpent. These are people deep in the jungles, right? These pygmy people of Southeast Asia, who are the original peoples of those regions, they still talk about a rainbow serpent, right? Where, where's that best known? Well, well, I don't know, Australia. So, I mean... You know, you, you really have to, yeah, people have to dig deeper into this. And I, I don't think, I know we're, still, we're talking about aliens, but, you know, obviously I can go off into these side subjects because, you know, people aren't talking about them. They don't realise they still keep looking in the same places for the same, you know, the same thing. They're not going to find it by going around around in circles. 
Um, but yeah, so there is this tradition anyway that goes back with the, you know, the Aboriginals that kind of explains a lot of this other stuff. Yeah. Um, and what I was getting at that is where the Pleiades law has come out of that. And there is one of the reasons why we see so much similarity with that law as well is because you have to trace it back to its source. So the source of anything, you should always go back to the oldest, right? I mean, that's just common sense. Where do we get the oldest stories of the Pleiadians and these visiting beings and, you know, the seven sisters with the Aboriginal people of Australia, right? And I think, well, lots of the evidence now, sorry, sorry, lots of the evidence now is pointing to those being the oldest Aboriginals on the planet now, too. Absolutely. So those law stories, you will not find older than the dreaming stories, okay? So if if people want to say, where's the source of all this wisdom, right? It's the oldest. The source is the oldest. Yeah, like those people and see what they're saying. It's like technically Australia is going to end up being the real Mesopotamia. Is that the way of looking at it? Well, they've they've kept that old wisdom alive in ways that other places haven't. Because Because the Mesopotamia would be a later version then, I guess. We're talking about two different. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, because what what happened is like up until about 13,000 years ago, right? You'd have had the cultures across like the Indonesian islands and, and Southeast Asia, which essentially was Sunda, right? But they would have been in communication, of course, with the Aboriginal people of the North Coast. Because the, Sund- the Sundanese are the, uh, probably the oldest mariner culture on the planet, right? Apart from anything else, to get between Southeast Asia and Australia, you have to use boats, right? So no matter whether you say people went into Australia or out of Australia, whatever your view is, you have to accept people were sailing at least 60,000 years ago, right, in that region. So you've got the oldest mariner culture on the planet. So you can't tell me that these people are not in contact with the people on the coast of Australia. So the culture is shared. And these are also the same people genetically. They are Aboriginal people, right? So the Sundanese culture and North Coast culture of Australia is essentially singular for a long time, up until the rising sea levels at the end of the Younger Dryas, right? So then a vast, vast amount of Sunda is going under the water. And these people are, are mariners. So what do they do? They get in their ships and they start to sail away. And where they sail to next is somewhere that people will know from Graham Hancock's work, they sail to the, the southern coast, the tip of India, where they have a city, a port city, right, which is now deep under the water. Graham Hancock has dived on that city. There is a, a sunken city, 13,000 years old at least, right, went under the sea. So that was one of their routes on the way to Mesopotamia. So then they carried on from there. They had a connection to the coast of, of Saudi Arabia, and they could sail up the rivers, right? Up the Tigris and stuff, and up to these sites. So where do we find the fact that the founding of their civilization? At the top of a river, because yeah. these are mariners, right? They sail across to India. In the coast there is sinking of their city as well. So they're like, shit, something terrible is happening. So they sail onto their other region that they're interested in, which is at the time is a green land, right? It's now known. Saudi Arabia was was covered in lakes and rivers. If you talk about recently in the news, they realized there was hundreds of rivers and lakes. And this is at the end of the Younger Dryas? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and even then, I think at that time, at that time, the Mediterranean was probably only a river too, right? Things were very, yeah, things were, I can't say off top of it, but things were very different. So 400 less feet, I've heard. Moving west, away from this flood, and then it moves inland, you know, because you've got rising sea levels. And so it really founds, again, a civilization in Mesopotamia that takes with it all this symbolism, which you can see all over the stones at, you know, Gobekli Tepe. Um, so that's, I mean, I, I don't want to sort of derail too much from the, the, the DNA. But, but you get the idea that, yes, that this traces back to them. 
Yeah, well, I guess we can go back. We can we can go it back into the you know eight hundred, a little bit further back to eight hundred thousand years, and talk about some of the other um, other points that you guys brought up in the book for evidence. You know, whether we get into the genetic. I mean, we definitely have to get into the genetic stuff before. But like, we can't leave that on. We can't leave that on the table. That's the most one of the most important yeah. things. So, yeah, yeah, people have to understand that because I mean, yeah, it is about the creation of Homo sapiens. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, the you know. The bottom line is, you know, it appears that there is an intelligence out there or in there or inside or in another dimension. Now, wherever have you want to look at that, there's an intelligence that wants us to understand that Homo sapiens do not have a, a typically normal evolution process for a species. Yeah. That they have, you know, that they have come about in, a, in an abnormal way around 800,000 years ago. And that in fact, that before that, they do not have a normal evolution experience. Um, and this is one of the reasons why they involve themselves. You know, leading academics say, well, we think an advanced alien race probably wouldn't involve themselves in the natural evolution of a species. Well, I think that's probably fairly true, certainly for benevolent races. But when you've got a species which they say, look, that the early hominins themselves have been engineered by an ET race using playing around with DNA, you know, four or five million years ago. So there's already an abnormal start to hominins in that claim. And then, so these other beings that come 800,000 years ago, their intention is described not as to come and create us, but they are coming to colonize. But they're using their genetic engineering technologies to modify themselves en route um, to prepare themselves to live in what would be a fairly hostile environment. Uh, and that when they get here, there is an event, you know, a betrayal by another group supposedly handing over the earth to them. Uh, that's you know, there's complex exopolitics, a bit like Danny's experience in her journeys, that there's these ongoing complex situations between different intelligences. And they, so they want this planet back because they say it's supposed to be a living library of genetic codes of various star beings in our DNA, in the DNA of all life on this planet. Within that 97% non-coding DNA is, is potential codes for all kinds of galactic species, right? And this is something that's come up in the research of the 100 Genomes Project. A couple of the scientists a few years back came out and said that they felt exactly that. They said that they, there was codes in the DNA that suggested to them that it was an engineered you know, um, code from some designer and that they felt that 97% contained codes for other beings. So this isn't just something that, you know, is coming out of this. This is like leading, you know, actual academics are, are stumbling on that. We're just like um, a shitty USB stick. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. And so then they realize that, you know, so if you think, well, if that's the case, so these beings are coming in knowing that DNA itself is an advanced technology. We consider it an advanced terraforming technology left here by an unknown, even, even higher intelligence, which these other aliens are interested in because they think, hey, you know, this is incredible stuff. We can play around with it and create all kinds of beings and they find it of, of value. Um, there's nothing else on the planet of value. You should be clear on that. Gold, silver, water, all these things are abundant elsewhere, in, the, in not only in our solar system, but across the galaxy, right? You don't travel all the way to Earth to get some gold or some water or, or any other minerals. You can get those from meteorites, moons, planets, everywhere. Like the one thing we have that is of great interest is this incredibly advanced code, this DNA. Uh, so the next thing you have then is that this kind of handover, which doesn't go well. The main ship is destroyed. These few survivors are isolated here without the bulk of their technologies. They can no longer fully adapt to the, the planet in time to survive here. They can't colonize it. 
they realize that, you know, they're going to die off. Some of them are already dying to diseases, bacteria in the water, bugs that are biting them. They're ill-equipped without their mothership to survive here. So their secondary plan, plan B, is, well, we can still begin the process of reclaiming this planet by imbuing a part of ourselves into a, a being that can live here. And also, in their own claims, and something I, I would agree with and understand from, from other sources, is that they intend to incarnate themselves into these beings, almost like creating a, a spacesuit for themselves. They begin to engineer the hominins and upgrade them with the intention knowing that when they pass away, they can direct their reincarnation into these beings. And a directed reincarnation is something that Tibetan masters have been telling us about for, for centuries. Um, obviously, obviously, people disregard them usually, but you know they're very clear on it. That if you meditate most of your life or whatever, and you work with your consciousness, you can get to a point where you can decide where, when, and who you will be next, right? And this is what these beings are basically doing. They're saying, well, you know, we'll just go into it. We'll make a better body for ourselves, and it will also help the hominins themselves to become something more. And it will start the process of bringing this planet back into this alliance of worlds, which are kind of benevolent, rather than being with these sort of hostile groups. So they have this a plan B that kind of covers all the bases still. And then they begin this process. And how do we know they do this? Right, the reason why we know that they do this, can you look back and you look to see, it's only the last two years that you can actually do this. Yeah. Right, until about two years ago, it was commonly believed that Homo sapiens emerged about 300,000 to 400,000 years ago, having split from Neanderthals and you know other related you know humans is somewhere in that region of 500,000 years ago, okay, um, or less, depending on who you ask. It's only now that a number of studies have really come together and said, no, no, we've got this wildly wrong. In fact, it looks like the last time that Denisovans, Neanderthals, and us shared a common ancestor uh, was about 800,000 years ago, <laughs> right? And so we didn't know that until the last couple of years. And then the other thing, they, they've looked to see when do they start diverging and a recent study, I think Utah, I think University, um, they've come up with, they said, look, we find it somewhere in that range, 750 plus you know, thousand years ago. Um, and then other studies that have looked at specific genes have shown them that they last shared an ancestor between Neanderthals and humans 780,000 years ago. Yeah. Proteins that they've traced go back to around 780 to 800,000. Again, so it's all clustering in. Right on that date, seven hundred fifty to eight hundred, with a preference for seven seventy to seven eighty thousand. Right, for the divergence of these large-brained hominins. And the strange thing there, first thing you get there is, it just one of you know, it's not like it just starts that you know, hominins begin to change. Yeah, suddenly, like loads of different kinds of humans appear, almost as if someone's running bizarre experiments, <laughs> creating new beings. You know, and so you start thinking about it, like, yeah, they wouldn't get it right the first time. And not all results would be the same. So you do suddenly get this strange explosion of large-brained hominins, right? It just appears like out of nowhere. And it is out of nowhere. I mean, the archaeological record has always considered it anomalous that 800,000 years ago, the human brain size suddenly goes into rapid acceleration. And that was known before the genetics was really studied. It was like something exploded, you know, in us 800,000 years ago. Okay? But now, of course, we have the genetic data. And so now that they're looking, drilling down deeper to see what happened, and what you're finding is, is a few things. One of them is um, the infamous fusion of chromosome two, right? Uh, and that has long been a matter, you know, not only in a 
of academic interest, but in the fringe, you know, people have said, well, maybe that's aliens creating humans. Okay, so that that's not a new idea that we've stumbled on. But the difference is, in the past, people have always said, well, it probably happened two hundred thousand years ago, and that's what made Homo sapiens. You know, because people assumed Homo sapiens are two hundred thousand years old, right? Um, which is not really true. Okay, there's older archaic Homo sapiens. Uh, two hundred thousand years ago, yes, our brain changes again and stuff, so you become more modern, right? But this fusion is much older. And the other thing, the academics thought maybe it was a million or maybe it was four million years old. And maybe it's what separated us from the chimpanzees and the other primates, right? But that was the other side of the coin. But now they're able to pin it down. And like there's a, a guy I think from Cambridge University that I mentioned in the book. And he looked at this and he found that, okay, because we know, first of all, we know that it's shared between Neanderthals and Denisovans, right? So if you put the divergence of these groups at 780,000 years ago, it has to have happened at least then, right? And he looked to see, could we see how far back it went? And by looking to see um, basically the fusion site, you know, that stops certain changes in the ends of the chromosome that normally happen because they fused. But he was able to look at the chemical like argument to see when the, you know, when this froze. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to fully understand that because I'm not, you know, I'm not a microbiologist or something, right? But so he looked into the chemistry of and he came to conclusion it had to be around 750,000 years ago. So when you put that into context, that means it, it has to be the same time as the neanderthal Denisovan split, which is about 780,000. So he's come to this same dating. So it, it's coming in at the same time as the split. And then on top of that, the fusion site itself is strange because it fuses on an active gene and in a way which would, would impact brain size, uh, reproduction, and the immune system. Like areas you'd really want to modify if you're upgrading these hominins, right? Uh, and on, on, on that, so that's one thing. That's one bizarre thing. You know, and then, of course, you've got the brain size increasing. And then, but then you can look at specific genes, right? And you've got, they know now that there are multiple genes that dif differentiate us from other primates, most of which are to do with the brain, right? Which is in itself is strange. They looked and they saw that these genes do not change in the same way, in the same rate as other genes in the human system. They seem to suddenly change in an anomalous way, dozens of them. Um, but you take a couple of very specific ones. There's one that is to do with the folding of the neocortex, right? Uh, and it just, and they, they actually describe it as it seems to just come out of the non coding DNA. <laughs> like it just appears, right? It just suddenly appears yeah. out of non coding DNA. And like you flash back to what those scientists said the non coding DNA, the 97%. Is, is code available that can code alien species, right? And that's the 100 Genomes Project scientists saying, we think it's all in that non-coding DNA. These Pleiadians know that. But they don't have to splice in loads of material. They go into the non-coding DNA and just start creating new genes for it, right? Start coding them. And then on top of that, they also know that, okay, they have technologies like CRISPR technology, right? That we're using now. We see the hallmarks for it because... They describe, there's another one that's got a gene that is to do, again, with the brain. They say, it's as though someone has just cut like a fragment of an existing gene, replicated it, and put it back in. Yeah. Like, yeah. These are academics <laughs> saying this. And like, they must be thinking, like, how do we phrase this in a way that doesn't sound like aliens? <laughs> because, you know, these are really problematic. You can't use the word they. It's like someone's ear off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can't use they, that's for sure. No, yeah. it just happens, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's like, uh, and it just sort of somewhere just it Xerox. Then he's using Xerox, like it's Xerox. I mean, 
that's really for me. So when Estrada says it's like it's been Xerox and put back, he's like, "Come on, man! You know you're you know you're thinking what I'm thinking, but you just don't want your career ruined, right? So <laughs> you're not saying it. And then, you know it's just appearing out of nowhere, and that then you have all these profound changes. So you know, yeah, there's a big red flag right on that 780,000 years ago um, for major changes for the creation of the first archaic Homo sapiens, yeah. um, and on. I mean, I'll just go a little bit if you want to talk about the physical changes, because there's a there's an obvious problem with this, because if your brain size suddenly increases rapidly, uh, obviously your head size does too. Now, that's a problem for the anatomy, because obviously, you know, a, a woman can only have a certain size birth canal, right? Like, no matter what you do, unless you, you horribly mutate her in some way. I mean, you know, she has to be able to walk. You know, she has to have normal functions, okay? So there is only a certain size birth canal a woman can have. So how do you get around this problem? Because if you create a larger-brained, you know, hominid, and it dies in the womb, killing the mother, all you're really doing is causing a genocide, you know, you're engineering genocide for these poor, you know, hominids that were going about their business. So how do they get around this? And the way they get around this is by modifying the, the actual uh, the gestation of the fetus so that we, we have a slower gestational period, right? But we're still born kind of when we're supposed to be born. So when we are born, we are still essentially a developing fetus, right? But the, the, the bones of the head haven't fused. We're nowhere near ready to walk or do anything, you know. Um, in fact, you know, we can't even hold our heads up. You know, we can't we not do anything. Um, so we come out as a developing fetus, which allows the brain to continue to rapidly expand. Right? And this is called neoteny. It's when you, you lengthen childhood and childlike traits into adulthood and into, you know, extended period of life. And this comes with a number of great advantages, not only for a species that you want to grow a larger brain in, but it also changes social behavior. Because if you have you know, children that cannot walk and do anything themselves or feed themselves, obviously they're dependent on parents. Very away, you have a lengthy dependency. Now, those parents will struggle on their own, particularly in like the Stone Age, you know, they, they can't just hide in the house from predators or whatever, you know, there's huge problems. But then you need community. You need to have at least a few other people you have some sort of social contract with where you will all pitch in to make sure that the, the children survive for years uh, and that, you know, you feed yourselves and defend yourselves, you start to enforce this behavior, right? And neoteny is further uh, increased by domestication. We've seen this in domestic animals. So th the mere fact that aliens are guiding this means they're domesticating the hominins, right? And so they're reinforcing neotenous traits, even by just directing us. And so they're really setting us on this path of accelerated neoteny and increasing social complexity. And then, of course, they've wired in a, a gene for language, FOXP2, right? And so the FOXP2 gene, there is a, it is in, there's a version in primates, but that one goes back millions of years. Then we see a unique change occurs at the beginning of this lineage, right? As a scientist says, it seems to happen at the same time as all this explosion in brain size, right? Uh, suddenly a language gene is modified, you know, a gene that will help us with language. But they want us to be able to communicate and speak, right? That, again, is anomalous. FOXP2 and then modifies yeah. again later only in humans. Um, so you have all these things you'd want, the big brain, the, you know, the social behavior, the language, all emerging from these events 780,000 years ago. So I don't know. I mean, if, 
I don't know why other people would think of that. It certainly is a red flag to us. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's 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 fascinating. That Food all, for thought. Yeah, that all this stuff comes together around that period of time. I mean, it's nice that people like yourselves can piece all this scientific stuff together and then add a little bit more of the, uh, you know, the harder to prove stuff, but the spiritual stuff oh. that also kind of mm-hmm. kind of adds adds some credence to it as well. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, we couldn't have done it without that, you know, um, I'll be honest, you know. And the thing is, I know that makes it a problem because some people want it to be like, say, with my last book, which is, just dealing with mundane science, yeah. you know. Although my argument is controversial in some ways, you know, I am re- referring only to academic sources. But for this, you can't really do that, you know. And also we have to acknowledge that the kind of contact these beings, or these intelligences use is anomalous. That, you know, if they are advanced, other dimensional, you know, quantum-wielding phenomena like intelligence, you know, like, I could still cut all that out and just pretend like it's not happening for the convenience of mundane materials. Yeah, but, but there's a have- there's a lot of uh, you know there's a lot of evidence now with like Ian Stevenson's work that you guys reference in there as well. There's a lot of reincarnation work and uh, all kinds of you know channeling evidence and mediumship stuff. And I mean, there's all kinds of this you know even UFOs. I mean, there's you know the list goes on and on and sooner or later it's going to start to be accepted i mean it just keeps growing and growing and the the you know the materialists don't have a leg to stand on anymore really it's just getting getting ridiculous so you know it's not necessarily that much of a stretch throwing that that kind of stuff in there a little bit to uh to complete the yeah, picture it should, be, should be expected in a way really and i think that people should be expecting like you know contact with a, a truly advanced intelligence Again, the leading scientists involved in this say it should almost be like magical phenomena, you know, and that's what they're telling us. Because you say, if you imagine a, a civilization that is a million years older than us, yeah, exactly. what kind of technology yeah. does it have? Yeah. A lot of it will yeah. be, you know, inconceivable, invisible. So you wouldn't even be able to recognize some of their technology. And like, and like that again matches perfectly because you have like this object this what we assume is some sort of stone object these chiringa stones the aboriginals talk about but look imagine like you're a super advanced intelligence that has protocols for interacting with with we'd call it say less developed nations <laughs> what about a technology that just looks like a rock yeah yeah exactly you just put it on the planet and you yeah. leave it there yeah. and it even records or sends out signals and it holds a consciousness of a being in it probably yeah. in the silicon crystals within the rock because yeah. they're a silicon technology right and you've got all these silicas in the stones. I mean, that is, you start thinking, think, well, yeah, hang on a minute. That's like, we just drop the rock on the planet and it does all the stuff for us. And then when the time's ready, we do, we, we come to open contact or whatever, you know. So again, people have to really say, you know, oh, well, you know, some Aboriginal rock or whatever. It's like, no, you're not thinking. Million years older than us, civilization. What kind of technology has it got? Yeah, you know? exactly. Or the, or the tectites even too. I mean, who knows what's going on yeah. with all those. Yeah. What, yeah, what are they doing? And what is it? Because the Aboriginals say they can use them as power objects. And yeah. Stuff. Yeah. So again, what are they doing? And I did wonder because there's a story. The Hebrew um, mystical texts talk about the the was it the 288 divine sparks that fall to earth that sort of begin things on the planet and all that. So I mean, what are these divine sparks? I mean, could that be these these pieces of the fragmented? It says the fragmented vessels that God makes at the beginning. You know, they fragment and that they spray these 288 fragments of light or whatever across the planet. Like, that's pretty weird. Like, sort of, I don't, I'm not saying it is that, but yeah. some of these references, you wonder, isn't it, if some of these are coming out of stuff like this, yeah. you know, again, because they trace back to Aboriginal understanding, like all of these stuff does. I mean, 
Um, if you go back far enough, you'll find there's an evolution from law stories into you know, later Gnostical understandings and from Gnostical understandings into mainstream religious understandings. So there is a continuum. So one has to wonder, and I think that the Aboriginals probably at least some groups, some elders will, will certainly know this stuff, but, you know, they have a very strict system, you know, where if you're not, if you're not initiated, you, you're not allowed to know. And I actually find that very sensible because I do understand this because look, you know, we've been through all sorts of like events, initiations, if you like, and it is very hard to talk to other people that are not in some way an initiate of those levels of consciousness. Because if I just sit down in the pub and start telling someone a lot of the stuff, you know, obviously we can talk about even, you know, I'm going to have some issues with that, right? So I can understand why an Aboriginal elder has come to the conclusion the best thing was to just keep that for other people that you could sensibly talk about it with. Because yeah. otherwise they just looked at you like you were crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So, Daniela, go ahead, Darren. No, no, go ahead. No, do you, how's your book? Uh, I mean, are you, how do you feel after finishing this? And and what are you, what's your guys' plan going forward? I mean, are you going to let Bruce back to his uh, his other book, Into America, or whatever, think, finishing that off? Yeah, um, I'm going to sort of, like, kidnap Bruce a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not, you're not getting back to that I one so soon. I think there's more to tell. I think there's more to tell, and I, I kind of feel like there's, like, going sort of back to nature, back to shamanic work um that sort of like needs to be relayed and sort of like have a bit more of the history put into it i think there's another book there in the background somewhere that we sort of should be yeah and then he can go back to the other genetic science <laughs> boring stuff oh, <laughs> boring. Yeah. are you guys doing any any traveling or, or podcasts or, any, or uh, sorry presentations or conferences or traveling or anything like that you haven't been invited to any Oh, we've been invited to one, well, possibly. <laughs> We're going to slowly start to get it out. It's just like, you know, to be fair, when this thing happened to me in 2012, I wasn't ready for it and I was quietly doing something that completely different. I was into horse brokerage and I, my world was horses. So I've been living in Spain and, and working with horses. So first of all, I just want to point out that I feel that this is Bruce's fault <laughs> in a way <laughs> because – I think what happened is he went to Egypt um, in 2011 and, and he was at Abu Ghraib in Egypt um, and he sort of called out to the Pleiades and sort of I think what he did was he opened a, um, a doorway for this to, to occur because when we came together two months later is when this whole phenomenon started. Wow. Um, and it, it sort of like it derailed me from what I was doing. I was not a researcher up until that point. I knew nothing <laughs> about the Hopi Indians. I knew nothing about the Mayans. My passion was horses and genetics relating to horses. Um, so, I mean, in that sense, yeah, I can blame Bruce for that. So, Bruce, what so, did you, you want to talk about how you, what you did there in that moment? Sure, yeah. That was weird. Uh, and definitely Abu Ghraib is one of these sites that is connected to the Pleiades. I believe part of the alignment with the Pleiades. Maybe it's on that chart you were looking at. I'm not sure. But Abu Ghraib is very near to the pyramids. It's an ancient, a very ancient site. Some people have told me that maybe it's a 12,000-year-old site, maybe the oldest site right, in Egypt, which is quite funny. There's some legends there about it. Um, there's also an article called The Stargate at Abu Ghraib by William Henry. So I'll just throw that out there for people. Anyway, I didn't know that at the time. I went there with a friend who um, is a you know researcher of ancient Egypt, you know, and he goes into the tunnels there and he does all sorts of stuff. So I was privileged to be taken to places I wouldn't have known about, uh, and this was one of them. We had private access at Abu Ghraib at night, 
And one of the friends was there, you know, my friend's partner, she she said she felt it was a Stargate. And, you know, we're all quite intuitive people, and she felt it was a Stargate. So she started chanting, like, open the Stargate, open the Stargate. I joined in, you know, he joined in. That's what her intuition was. Um, and we're standing on, there's a platform there, an alabaster platform. It's very unusual. It looks like it's being cut with, you know, technology. But yeah. Not yeah. Yeah. But it's a very unusual, right? Um, unique platform. I don't know of another one in Egypt like it. Maybe there is. I don't know. Uh, we stood on that and chanted this. And then afterwards, you know, I walked away and I was standing. Like, I can't say that, you know, oh, the, the sky opened up and the aliens <laughs> poured. You know, I'm not going to say there was nothing like that. But I, I just sort of got the feeling to look up. And I noticed the Pleiades seemed to be rising uh, sort of in front of the entrance to the complex. So it probably is aligned to the rising of the Pleiades, right? Um, and I was looking up at it, and I just felt in myself this connection. And I started out loud sort of saying to it, like, why have you left us here? You know, why don't you come back? Why don't you help humanity? You know, and I was actually, like, really emotional, like, sort of upset with the, whatever was there in the Pleiades. Um, and I was talking to it. And then nothing, nothing, like, you know, in a way, you almost expect to see something, like, you know, will a light appear? Like, why has this just happened? But nothing happened, right? And then two months later, with Danny, obviously in Ecuador, that's when it just kicked the off. shit hit the fan. It just like, kicked you know, off really, suddenly. Yeah, it just really, it really kicked off. And then, you know, she had all these abduction and these meetings. So, yeah, I take responsibility. <laughs> you know, I was at a site, which is a Stargate, and I asked them to come back and to make contact, yeah. and, and they did. Way so, to go. You know, yeah. Way to go, Bruce. Nice, yeah, I love it. Careful what you ask for. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Stargate, yeah. Right? I love it. I love it. Well, we hope there's another book in there, too, because this one was great, so... Definitely recommend it to everybody. And yeah, we hope there's another one. There will be. I've still got to do Into America. I'll still later, later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah well, right let on. us know when Into America pops out and we'll, uh, we'll we'll do a show for that one too. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I hope I've covered everything. Does that all sort of make sense? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And of course, I want to refer the audience back to if uh, if you haven't already listened to episode 223, uh, that'd be grimerica.ca slash EP223. Um, there's another, I think, about two and a half hours with Bruce talking solely on uh, ancient human migration. Yeah. Yeah, I think we covered it well. Yeah, it's it's really good. Yeah. Yeah, we'll put up the links to your Twitter and everything in the show notes. Awesome. Yeah, if people check that out, you know, obviously. Oh, wait, before we let you go, Wolfen, yes or no? Yeah, we, after that, I found that link, didn't I? You've been sending me really links, were, yeah. Yeah, they really were linked. So I was quite surprised to see that, I'll be honest. So dolphins and wolves, okay? Eh? So <laughs> who would have thought? Bingo, bango. <laughs> right on, guys. Will you enjoy the rest of your uh, your day in Australia? And uh, try not to try not to go into the dark too much as your guys' days get shorter <laughs> yeah. over there. We'll try not to open any more portals. Yeah. Well, no, that's okay. Keep, please do. At least it doesn't go down to like minus 40 when you guys hit <laughs> your, your short days. No, 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 no. Never, never that bad. No, no. Not yet. <laughs> no. When the, when the changes come to the planet. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. No, no. The next you shift. Know. Yeah. Yeah. All right, right guys. On, guys. Well, thanks right. for coming on and come okay. back anytime. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. 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 And that was our chat with uh, Bruce and Danielle Finn. What'd you think, buddy? Always fun to talk to Bruce. Yeah, it was good. Like I said, it was pretty, 
I was pretty blown away at all the sort of coincidences that happened around that time time frame. So, pretty funny, eh? Yeah, <clears throat> I feel like we should almost get Brody in here for the wrap up to some of these more um, you know crazier ones too. But there is a lot of legit scientific evidence in the last couple of years talking about genetic changes and evolutionary stuff. So I love how they incorporate all that, and then the meteor impacts around that time and the climate changes. I mean, oh man, something weird happened. I mean, yeah, that's the same problem I have with ancient, like watching ancient aliens. It's like, yeah. there's like 20% fact and like 20% speculation, like 80% fucking. Earth. That's 120%. That yeah. yeah. Make sense. It's all <laughs> 110% baby. Mean 60% yeah. maybe bullshit. Yeah. Well, not bullshit, no, but, but like, <clears throat> Like personal interpretation. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Right? But like all those facts, like you can't ignore the facts. Yeah. But like, yeah. it's hard to take it all. Yeah. Cause it's, it's just part, story, you know? it's part of the, I think it's the beginning of planting the seed, looking at the paradigm shifting. And then as more and more evidence comes out and we can start linking it stuff together. I mean, think about it five or 10 years ago, thinking about humanity before the, the ice age was ridiculous. Like, yeah. you know, whoa, like a modern, modern human. I mean, of course there was the, you know, you would think about it as cave, you know, cave people and Neanderthals, but now it's it's becoming general knowledge that okay, it's pretty acceptable that something advanced was around humanity wise before the before the ice age. Seems to be heading possible, in that possible, direction. Possible anyway. Yeah. And the more Definitely. of you guys that have head over to grimerica.ca slash support and sign up for a monthly or some sort of support option there, the uh the longer we'll be able to keep probing these rabbit holes until yeah. we maybe one day figure it out. With no commercials. I mean, really, like in a show like this where Bruce can just go on and We would have lost 15 minutes whole, to commercials. Imagine all the interruptions. Oh, no, it's 15 minutes an imagine hour. How, and how you get back to oh. his his point after like a commercial interruption. So no, right. none of that. Support the show, motherfuckers. We can keep doing this thing we're doing. Yeah, thanks for joining us live, Absolutely. Too. Thanks yep. for tuning in live. Uh, tune yeah. In, tune in. Tuning in live to the show there. All right, guys. Uh, big thanks to Bruce and Daniela for coming on the show. Um, do check out all their stuff. Follow them on Twitter. All that fun stuff. Do everything Graham's got in his show notes. All that stuff. Support the show. Share the show. Rate the show. Sign up for the newsletter. Get some swag. And then just enjoy some good vibes. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Smiling, he's also new to this world. This mystical world. The inertia of the electric spirit pushes me to make sure there are golden qualities and all the ink that bleeds and sees the pain. She plays perfectly a trampoline. Beneath my heart Now that organ of vitality Bounces in my ribcage Really what have I done To deserve such preciousness Fortunate are my mystified eyes I know a city It's called Genoa City Plant the seed and grow a city Electromagnetism all around, above and below the city. I know a city, it's called Genoa City. Plant the seed and grow a city. Electromagnetism.
She plays perfectly a trampoline beneath my heart Now that organ of vitality bounces in my ribcage Really what have I done to deserve such preciousness? Fortunate are my mystified Swirling in aroma wind, smoky and damp, frozen over the Midwest. A rose in a bed of rose petals. I had photographic memory of you, lady, spicy like a Mexico morning. But Wisconsin in the winter, in the morning, without you, woman goes shiver cold. Placed perfectly a trampoline beneath my heart now that organ of vitality bounces in my ribcage what have i done to deserve such preciousness fortunate are my mystifies she plays perfectly a trampoline beneath my heart now that organ of vitality bounces around inside my ribcage What have I done to deserve such preciousness? Such preciousness Fortunate are my mystified eyes They like coast to coast, but on demand, raw and uncut interviews, and all without no ads. Once it's false, and once that's true, and the rate you sink grows too. America, America is here for you. Stories from the listeners, they sent to Graham. He'll read the man, be amazed, but Darren. One says red and one says blue But if it's false, it just won't do Grimerica, Grimerica is here for you
Okay, there we go. <laughs> we had the new moon, dark sky, which is great. <laughs> had a plan camping, pitched a tent, went back there for the night. Crystal clear, darkest night. So I had to read that meditation, did the singing bowl, and that shit starts happening. Pow, pow, pow. We started seeing flash bulbs. Streakers coming down. Grim thumb up. Is the he said it star. Grim thumb up. Is the he said it star. Blubbity, blubbity, blah.